Hello and welcome to episode 252 of the Crate and Crowbite. It's the 29th of August 2018. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Good day. Hello. Good day, Tom. Hello. It's just us today, Chris. It is just us because Alex is poorly. Spare a thought for Alex. And everyone else is busy. Everyone else is busy. Alex is poorly. And so, yes, it is just you and I, but there's loads to talk about because in a very kind of uh, Crate and Crowbar sort of couple of days we had both the well i won't talk about this too much but the finale of, of dota 2 international and probably the best one yet wow very very good obviously watch that best of five grand final if you care at all about esports because it was mm. a miracle um, it was a magical journey uh, i enjoyed it very much and i'm still tired <laughs> because of it um but also because uh just you know low-key dropped some um, spelunky 2 footage and information today and i feel like we'll probably return to this topic next time tom francis is on the podcast mm. but damn it's spelunky too sure is it's got lovely liquid physics now it's one of the many new things that's been added kind of it looks like it looks very much like spelunky like i was almost surprised by how similar it looked in a way mm. um i don't know what i was expecting but uh, there are actually like based on the interview on the playstation blog that derek you did there are some quite cool new features for example the levels you see have like almost two sides to them. You can uh, go through a doorway and then be in a kind of uh, the other side of the level that can look really different, have different mm. geometry and stuff. And the randomization is going to cater to this. So you can kind of go through the randomized half of the level, go through a doorway, go to the other side of the level and kind of see what that's like and maybe go back. Uh, and it, it looks like that's going to be quite mind bending. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Lots of, it's very quick trailer, but lots of like, it's the thing you want from Splunky, just lots of little interactions and mm. kind of the potential for things to play off each other in a sort of dynamic way. Yes. So, yes. like, you know, more buttons that activate things mm. and, and things that release, yeah, torrents of water and lava and um, a little man you can knock off what looks like a pig and then you can ride, ride his pig. pig around. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty rad. Yeah, it looks, um, it looks awesome. And, uh, it's nice seeing, like, I think there's a shopkeeper in there with a the shotgun. So some of those, like, elements are mm. going to be familiar. Like, we meet again, old friend. Also, brilliantly, um, it clarifies that the, the char- the main character's name is Anna Spelunky. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's actually the name. Which suggests that uh, she appears to be the daughter of Mr. Spelunky. John Spelunky. Yeah, sorry, Mr. Spelunky's Whatever my father. His name was, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there's someone, something tunnel. Margaret uh, Tunnel. Margaret Tunnel. Daughter uh, of the Tunnel Man, by the looks of things. It looks like they might have um, their own abilities. This guy also looks very much like uh, a game developer. Well, he looks like Colin Northway. He does. And he's called Colin Northwood. Yes, and they look very similar. Oh, well, because Colin Northway is basically in the first Blunky, right? Like, That's it's the same oh, character. It's the explorer yeah, yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. And then the other new character is a, uh, a sloth yeah. called Rofi de Sloth. <laughs> and I don't want to, like, obviously, I mean, correct me if, I, if you think I'm wrong about this, Tom. Mm-hmm. But does that sloth not remind you a bit of Graham? Ooh, interesting. If Graham was in the film Grease, uh, with the, the kind of, the quaff. I don't know, there's something about the implication of a fringe, but also the implication of a little beard. Okay. I don't yeah, know. I and and a relaxed that. kind of attitude. He just seems quite chill. He's also completely grayscale, which is quite strange. Everyone else is really colourful. The sloth is just, just grey. Mm. It's like a Pleasantville character. <laughs> Indeed, apart from his, his rope. There's a bit where one of the characters shoots an arrow into a wall and then uses the arrow as a platform. And that mm. got me enormously excited because, uh, Splunky's all, as you said, like about the potential for these little interactions that create crazy chain reactions and situate odd situations and problems that you have to escape from. And I love the idea of, you know, just being able to create your own ledges and how that might work in certain levels. Uh, just like, just that one little, one little bit, like just, all these gadgets could have like massive new ramifications of how you play Splunky. Yeah. And exciting. like the, 
And the, um, and the fact is that like, it's, it's less at this stage in terms of getting excited about it. It's less about like having to explain, Oh, well, this can happen when you do this mm. and more about just introducing elements that will, it's like, all I really want is like surprise. I yeah. want, I want, I want a set of things to learn that, you know, and secrets to discover about how things work. Yeah. That, are as surprising as Spelunky's were. Because if you explain Spelunky on paper, it's, it doesn't really work, right? Well, I mean, obviously the game works, but you don't get any measure of the, why it's good why it's to say right? like, okay, well, there are these bats and they come from this very particular angle <laughs> and you learn to deal with that. But then there are spiders and spiders are like, wait a moment. And then they go, blah. And that's exciting. And you're like, well, that just sounds like video game enemies. And then it's something to do with the kind of specific tuning of physics mm. and level design and placement and the stakes and things that make all of those things sort of end bottomlessly kind of engaging yeah and i was really excited by the new tile sets and stuff as well because it's set on the moon i think this one but mm. oh yeah also that so it's going to be um but they showed like you know sort of foresty type environments moony environments and then just like straight up uh just sci-fi in space with giant snakes running around mm. just kind of crossing the level i think I, i'm so excited by by it i think it's going to be pretty good <laughs> i think that's my controversial great and crowbar prediction i think we might like it as great <laughs> and also um it gives us an excuse to talk about splunky for three more years which yeah, is what we exactly. did the first time the game came out so yeah look forward to that everybody exactly yeah and, and obviously tom will probably be on next week to talk about it and yeah. then we can just begin a rich go, precedent. go from there yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah Never um, stop and obviously it's, it's very much in our tradition that we would talk about that 90 seconds of of splunky 2 gameplay before getting to the uh 40 odd minutes of cyberpunk oh uh, yeah 2077 that half a million people watched or something yeah the um i I didn't think they would release that footage because Mm. the witcher 3 they put out some like quite early trailers that looked incredible and uh, people were very excited and it did loads to hype the game but they ran into so much trouble like years later when they had like fans comparing footage from current builds to old builds and it, it was kind of endless it's like they they changed the entire post processing tone of Novigrad, which is their big city, and uh, that caused like loads of angst and kind of people complaining on on social media and stuff like that. And so I, I thought that they just wouldn't do it. I thought they'd just let the press look at it and get excited about it, and then never actually expose it to the public mm. uh, because loads of stuff about that is going to change. Like it looks incredible in many ways, technically impressive. The city looks extraordinary. A lot of it looks kind of within reach but that I can't expect it to look like that, yeah. be like that in the end. So I guess we should talk about it as if people have seen it. So if people want to watch it, then go yeah, watch it's quite, it. If it's you, long. It's like almost an hour. Yeah. If you, if you want no spoilers or anything for Cyberpunk 27, then skip ahead a bit, I guess, or, yeah. on this pod. Um, yeah, I think I have a bit of a weird relationship with it because I find that, like the, there's, there's something about the way those games are received and you know, you've been both positive and negative sometimes brings out like the worst in people. I don't know <laughs> if that's too much to say, but like the kind of the downgrade stuff that was thrown at the Witcher is like, yeah, was flatly kind of unfair basically. The and, games and still look great. Of, that's the yeah. thing. Like you still got one of the best looking RPGs in the, at the end of the day. Um, but I think these, um, presentations, like they generate so much kind of, they generate so many assumptions. Yeah. And it's not really the, it's not the fault of people for assuming things based on footage they've released. Like it's asking for it. Like they want it in a way. Yeah. And, and then for some reason, like, uh, for some reason I decided to look at the YouTube comments for this. And <laughs> what's really, really interesting about it is it's like those negative assumptions, those unfair things that were thrown at CD project over those initial Witcher reveals. Um, like it almost isn't better when people like the game because mm. you're watching people kind of set totally spectacular and realistic expectations for things. Mm. The most, 
the best kind of like galaxy brain take I saw about this, about Cyberpunk 2077 in terms of criticisms level that Cyberpunk 2077 was, God, they're just ripping off Star Citizen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and you're like, wow, Whoa. okay. The other set of impossible expectations. <laughs> and it feels like something about their games is kind of really, I mean, it's obviously a lot of people are very excited about it, but it seems to very specifically have captured this very vocal mm-hmm. subset of people who really don't know how game development works. You know what I mean? There's something mm. about the kind of the promise of this, you know, living city where you'll be able to do anything. And it's, it's not going to deliver on that. Mm. Right. Like it looks very impressive. And I watched that demo, you know, impressed by the technology and what they've been able to achieve, but knowing this is a staged demo to show press and they will be genuinely controlling it. It will be the game, but this will not be the entire game because it it never is it never has been it's every every open world rpg gets a a a 40 minute walkthrough demo like this one yeah it will be very carefully rehearsed um you know this is the truth of showing games to people and sort of i sort of with how much stuff how much negativity gets thrown at game developers now i sort of assumed i think i was i guess i was surprised when people bought it quite as readily as Mm. they seem to have done if that makes sense yeah it kind of makes sense like, um, a comment that, that I saw quite a lot was like, um, now this is how you make games, EA. Go back to game school. <laughs> and it's like, well, it, I mean, everyone likes to hate on EA on the internet. But yeah, but the reason people hate on EA is, is because ironically, because of the assumption that EA is sort of misleading with their marketing and under deliver. Mm. And I'm not saying that CD Projekt will necessarily under deliver, but they are certainly playing a particular, um, a particular part of the marketing campaign here, yeah. right? They are clearly giving an idealized version of what the game will look like. And I just wonder if it just feels like a lot of people setting themselves up for, I don't know, the backlash a year down the line. Maybe that's the most negative thing you could possibly say about this. But mm-hmm. it, I find it sort of curiously saddening when something comes out that's really exciting and so much of the reaction is sort of almost like setting traps for developers, not just developers of this game, but the developers of other games mm-hmm. and, and so on. And maybe a lot of the responsibility for that lies with a tendency to market things in a way that promises often undeliverable or unrealistic things. Mm-hmm. But man, I'd really like... a I'd really like everyone to be reasonable. Or more chill. Just more chill yeah. out there, you know. Yeah. It was an impressively long vertical slice. I think they showed they mm. showed a lot more than they at all needed to. Uh and they gave us they gave a a good sense of the world they're trying to make. Mm. I think like aspects of it of it uh I found irritating, particularly the dialogue and a lot of the kind of interactions between characters. Uh but the rest of it and also like the to me the shooting and stuff didn't look terribly uh, amazing. Mm. Uh and I wonder how like the combat will actually end up playing out, but the the city itself looked astonishing, and there's yeah, yeah. how populated it felt. There's a number of NPCs wandering around these environments, kind of apparently having their own lives. That is a difficult thing to achieve, and it's something that I think will feel if they nail it and they do it, and that is representative of the final product. That will feel like a genuine step forward for you know mm. inhabited spaces in video games. Um, so I, I, I'm huge excited about a lot of it i think a lot of the art, art direction is pretty cool as well yeah yeah uh, it looks amazing yeah i think i i'm with you on the combat stuff like i, I appreciate that my opening on this may, may come across as super negative and, and i think i'm just very guarded because mm. like you know i would like um i think as an as a as a target that's amazing and i find it a lot more compelling than like what we saw initially of red dead 2 for example right. like you know i really do want to go to that city and i'm glad i've got a powerful pc to to throw at it sure um i really do hope that that is what it ends up looking like in terms of density of characters and things like that. You know, it sort of, I'm, 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 maybe I'm looking to be disappointed, but I'm, I'm looking for the things that maybe 
get scaled change. back, right? Sure. Like, definitely, you know, definitely. um, NPC density being one of them. Um, but all the little ambient details. And it was nice to see, uh, elements of that initial reveal trailer from E3 in the world, like the guy boxing, a kind of boxing mm. training robot. Right. Yeah. Uh, there is a bit of ambient world detail, which kind of proves to me that like a little bit of this is real, if you know what I mean? Like, yeah, definitely. you know, I'm, they're then occupying the mind of the guy who's got to get some capture for, for the trailers and goes and finds cool stuff in the world mm. that, that feels sort of legit to me now. And I can sort of get the shape of it. Mm. Um, great sort of incidental animations, very kind of, you know, just sort of really spot on, uh, design, as you say, for that world. Yeah. The, I was very impressed by the sequence where she's being augmented in a kind of basement and yeah. the way it kind of, because cyberpunk's relationship with the body is really interesting as a kind mm. of genre thing. And the fact that they've gone quite far to really, I think first person is great for this. And I really agree with their decision to stick in first person mostly to actually embody you in a changing body that you see being, mm. you know, moved around and kind of warped. And there's at one point you're giving a new eye and your eyeball is kind of, your vision flicks the eyeball to the side of you looking at your own body. And that's good cyberpunk shit. That's yeah. like, you know, being disembodied a bit and messing with that. That's fucking cool. And uh, I really hope they do a lot more with that in the final game. Yeah. Me too. I mean, you saw in that, that there's a humanity cost mm. um, for doing that. And, and so, um, for, so for, for, for reasons, um, that will hopefully be apparent in a couple of weeks. Um, I spent some time recently, like really getting to know that pen and paper system. And, uh, what I found really interesting about it is how much of it is in the, what they've shown, like, um, in terms of what they have and haven't done, mm. uh, because cyberpunk, that version of cyberpunk, so, you know, that role playing game is so, um, so much a kind of codification of 80s cyberpunk. And I've, I'm, I'm interested in cyberpunk and it has some weaknesses for that reason. Yeah. It, it, it looks forward to the future from a very specific vantage point and, and therefore it's not necessarily going to like, you know, cyberpunk 2020 now in 2018 <laughs> is very funny because yeah. of, you know, it, the things it gets right and wrong. It's set in a world where, you know, it's set in a world where the things they get right are interesting, but it's also set in a world where, like, you know, the euro dollar is supreme because the European Union is the only, well, actually, that's one thing it gets right. The European Union is the only thing that kind of, like, survives America and Britain tearing themselves apart, which is, <laughs> actually happens in the Cyberpunk 2020 backstory. Mm. Uh, very different outcomes. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, there's a, a brilliant, in the core book for 2020, there's, um, a brilliant thing about, like, how people get the news in the future. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such an imaginative piece of writing. One thing Mike Pondsmith did not figure out was websites. So there are these things called scream sheets that are, um, faxed to, they're like one sheet. Imagine a newspaper, but it was just one story at a time. If you can imagine that as someone who works on a news website in the year 2018, <laughs> it's a website, it's a magazine, it's a newspaper. You get one story at a time and you buy it one story at a time right. from a roadside printer that receives a fax from the newspaper headquarters. Wow. Okay. Um, and in the demo very early on when, uh, when she's in her apartment, you see her like check something on the screen sheet, but it's a website. Right. And so the little sort of modernization, to yeah, things. Yeah. but that setting in other ways is, is really rooted in, uh, a, you know, a very, um, uh, particular idea of what the future is going to be like um music is another big one it's set in a, it's 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 a it's a version of the future where sort of grunge didn't happen mm. which is the best way of describing the music okay it's like the assumption is in 1988 that kids that want to overthrow the government will continue listening to glam rock <laughs> and that sub pop is not going to happen right, okay. right and throw things in a different direction and and specifically the hip-hop is not going to happen yeah um, and, or not to that extent. And, uh, um, and for that reason, it's, it's, I don't know, I could talk about, I could talk about the, the strengths and weaknesses of that particular version of Cyberpunk for ages, maybe we should, but, um, 
but I really like their version of that sort of modernized out. And a big theme of that game is that, you know, the more imp- the imp- imp- putting implants in yourself is, is dangerous in mm. that, um, the more humanity you lose, the more risk you take in the pen and paper game, losing your, hum- if you completely lose your humanity, which is partly random. Every time you put a new implant in, you gamble yeah. with your humanity. If you completely use it, lose it, you take your character sheet and you give it to the GM. Right, and you have to make a new character because it's theirs now. <laughs> You've lost it. Yeah, yeah um, that obviously couldn't happen in the in the video game, but I'm excited to see them playing with that stuff, as you say, like embracing the body horror elements of cyberpunk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. because it isn't the point of cyberpunk is not giving yourself robot arms is cool. Hmm. It's the cost, right? It's all cost. At what all, cost? But also, it's cost all the way down, and yeah. it's, you know, it's capitalism all the way up, and it's robo legs all the way down. I don't yeah. know what I'm talking about. I, lo- I love stuff like uh, the uh, health insurance medic slash military trauma uh, team the trauma team yeah that's such a fucking cool idea that they're they're from the um that's that's pure original but that, that gave me a little stuff, right? that gave me a little sort of thrill of like um having obviously been playing with some of that stuff recently mm. um when she says platinum trauma team membership and what that means is that like they will come and find you within a couple of minutes yeah and there's even a bit where their netrunner says trauma team will be with you in uh three minutes mm. and in the role-playing game how quickly it will take trauma team to arrive is a dice roll um, and almost in my head i could hear like that, that felt very much like the, the role-playing game to yeah. me that it had that moment of like oh it'll be uh, d it's d6 minutes so it's uh, it's a three <laughs> like That's, yeah that moment was awesome the the, the execution the way they're kind of shown the fact that you, you're basically carrying a, a body out um barely alive into the sunlight and uh, um, one of the things i really love about the that demos where it goes in and out of the sunlight and the fact that they're showing that city in mm. night city in daylight mm. uh and they've executed it so well is is really encouraging they're yeah. obviously saving the night shots for later like you know that's what everyone wants to see is yeah. what it's going to look like uh, amusingly the original court book basically forbids you from saying anything during the day oh, so really? don't do it oh well. like like a lot of um this i think that's something i'd really like to see actually because it's such a it's such a no- I, I get why it's the case why where your first debut of the game is quite so noisy and busy and shouty mm. um but um something that i found really helped me get that setting is it is pretty ambivalent and it's quite um noirish in some ways like cyberpunk it's obviously yeah. set in the future but it has this element of like you can't win no one can really win mm-hmm. right like it's a system built to fail and um and a lot of you know that writing comes from the feeling of being in a strange city at night with all of the possibility that implies but also all of the danger and mm. maybe sense of loneliness or isolation you know the fact that the city's bigger than you are and it's always raining and dark and yeah there are exciting kind of spots bright spots of life but there's also this kind of you know structure sitting on top of you that i think is really core to cyberpunk for me at least and like i kind of want to see them do that mm. in addition to like the i've got mantis arms and i've hacked your gun slash yeah. slash slash stuff and they kind of and, and, and i'm completely reserving judgment on that because obviously in the demo they're not going to show you the standard Quiet, lonely yeah. street corner yeah, yeah mode for sure I, I i really hope there's potential for that as well i think that there are big questions about how kind of again how interactive the city is how many doors can you walk through how many yeah you know um whenever they transition from the streets into an a, like a an urban environment it's, it's a really exciting feeling of going down into some sort of you know the bowels of the place you go down like a rickety mm. elevator then you go down more corridors and you go out of the sunlight and down into this gang's lair which is full of you know high-tech stuff that they've robbed from you know corporations and uh that feeling of going to go in, in and out of danger and back up to the surface again was was really cool and yeah, yeah it's yeah. purely atmospheric stuff and i completely believe they can do that uh, i completely believe having played the witcher they can um see project red has the ability to 
forge a tone and sort of nail it and keep you in that space the stuff that i I worried about in the demo was more like um i didn't like the witch's combat i don't think they've ever done a great combat system and now they're making a shooter which requires a huge amount of you know uh expertise to make you know guns feel good to make first person combat feel Mm. uh decent and that that's what i would worry about along with some like for me some of the dialogue stuff which um i it was very very chatty demo and i could see why demos tend to be like that um, but hopefully it's not quite representative of the full game where you've constantly got a companion you constantly talk to people all the time yeah i kind of want to be my own agent i think that's so yeah i agree on both of those things and um on the combat system um one thing that um learning the pen and paper and obviously i it, it is i don't want to be that guy who says the game isn't relevant because it makes different decisions to the pen and paper system because of course it has to mm. but it's interesting as a touchstone for what the creative ideals of the thing are yeah and the pen the the book has a really um impassioned opening to its explanation of its combat system which is called friday night firefight hmm. and um and it is basically telling you this is written in, in the late 80s and i think republished in 1990 and it's set what it's saying is so what i'm saying is prior to the era of kind of like realistic video game combat right if, if that makes sense prior yeah. to wolfenstein and doom um and what it's saying is basically in so many words please don't treat this like dungeons and dragons it actually goes off on a huge tangent about how real gunfights work mm. and like interviewing real police like in in the year 1988 interviewing policemen right about how what happens in gunfights kind of chaotic and yeah what chaotic, happens when yeah. people are shot mm. like they don't fly backwards they don't no, scream fall they over. fall over like and it's it's very um for a game that's obviously got like robot eyes and stuff and and crazy grapple hands and all sorts of gadgets it's very concerned with feeling realistic when you play it mm. so it gives a lot of power to the dungeon master to, to say you know this is how it, this is how lethal it should be and it's extraordinarily lethal like right, right okay. it's not dungeons and dragons where you have damage numbers and healing and 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 you whittle enemies down mm. um and this is you know mechanically embodied in that original pen and paper system in a way that is super scrappy in some ways but like it means that when a gun gets fired it's really dangerous like it's a, it's a scary thing that happens like if you um you know if, if 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 for example you decided to fire your gun and it's a d10 based system and you roll a one that means you've got a critical fail mm. then you roll on the fumble table if you roll a nine or a ten then you hit an ally you then roll that to determine where you've hit them, because that's always the case. If you then roll a one, you've hit them in the head. Mm. Um, if your gun does a certain amount of damage, their character is gone now. Yeah. You have just, and that, and that is obviously a rare occurrence, but it's fully possible within the game system. And that's, well, yeah, that's yeah. by intent. Um, you know, and that can just happen. And it's, it's, it's mechanically unambiguous. Players just stare at it. The rules are along the way. If you hit in the head, uh, it's double damage. If a body part ever takes more than eight damage from a single attack, that body part is destroyed. Mm. If your head is destroyed, the character is immediately dead. Those are, that is rules as written and so that for me that um really helps inform the flavor of the game it's a game where it's encouraged to encourage role playing because you don't really want to fire a gun if you don't have to because it's really dangerous and maybe you eventually end up with a you know subdermal weave in your skin that means it's very rare that you'll take enough damage to die in one shot even a headshot but there it all is so it was surprising for me to then see the cyberpunk 2077 demo which suddenly has bullet sponge topless men yeah. with damage numbers above their heads mm. like that specific thing felt so unlike the original game and, and a tremendous um a, the tremendous arrival of dungeons and dragons via the witcher if that makes sense it's yeah. like yeah you know that i think um they've said subsequently that those things are optional in terms of the ui like you don't have to see the damage numbers and things but even then there's something about i guess what i would like it to be in terms of the integrity of the world and the game it appears they're making with you know uh, a much more rpg style combat system yeah that, 
I don't know, I'd like to see how that actually works out. RPG systems and guns have always sat together uncomfortably in video mm. games as well. Like the idea that you've got a machine pistol and you're spraying a dude with it and, and 100 number 22s come out of them. Like, it can work in some games. I'm playing Warframe at the moment, of course. and like, De- Destiny, right? Destiny, yeah, so sure, it happens. But, it, like, the every, everything was so resistant until the end of the demo where they broke out all the kind of end game tools that you'll have and everything everyone before that went took ages to take down and yeah it's yeah i think that that's the biggest danger zone for me that's the biggest danger point for the for the game Mm. um i I, I put up with a lot like i I thought um something i found really like i really did like the kind of cutscene bits like Mm. the kind of interact like both the way dialogue is sort of happens within the world but also like there's that moment when that when uh, she's being threatened the main character and and you can choose, um, obviously a bunch of dialogue options, but you can also look at, you know, you're being talked to by one character and another character, her like corporate henchman has you like by the neck, basically with a gun in your, in your face. And you can look at him and you have the option to attempt to disarm mm. him. Yeah. And I like, I really like the idea of implementing, like that feels very pen and paper to me, like that kind of having all of your options kind of manifest in the world from talking to fighting. Like, mm. you know, you have both. But I really want to know, I, I really wish they'd chosen the other option there because that felt, um, I mean, in a independent paper way, that, that moment felt very railroady to me. Like you can't survive this the other way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I really, really want to see that. Like, I think this would have been a perfect, I almost would have loved a video of about the same length that was just skip the beginning, that scenario, like three different ways, hmm. which is an, another old kind of demoing your game cliche, but like, I would have loved to have genuinely seen it rather than have the narrator say, imagine how this could have gone. Right. If that makes sense. Especially because your partner is on a bridge over, overlooking the deal with uh, like a sniper rifle, basically. Yeah. So you can imagine like stealing the gun and getting into a difficult combat, but you're assisted by uh, someone yeah. else. So yeah, uh, but again, like you're imagining it rather than actually seeing how it will play out. There seem to be loads of jumping off points in the demo for, you know, divergent points for that quest, but uh, and they all seem to be like, do you want to continue talking or would you like to fight now? And that yeah. seemed to be like the core choice throughout, really. Although obviously the, the, they went the talking route, but it led to a, a forced fight. So mm. there's, I guess there's an element of. Yeah, there was a bit towards the end where, I don't, I don't know actually, um, the demo I saw at Gamescom differs from the video they've put out in some ways. And I've not actually watched the full new video of it because I saw it last week at Gamescom. So, um, towards the end, so you, you, you go down and you've got like a credit chip and you've, there's a virus on it from that the corporation's put there and you, you can choose to warn the gangsters about the virus on the chip right and in the gamescom demo i saw they did uh, and the gangsters like basically quarantined the chip and kept it and then they let you go as kind of you know thanks for warning us type thing and uh, then on the way out uh your partner stops and pulls a grenade out of his jacket and asks you and like kind of nods at you and says do you want to actually go because first of all the credit chip is clear now so you can nick that and take it back and secondly you might just want to fight your way out just for the fun um and in the demo i saw like they did do that and that's when they broke out all of the kind of tools and stuff right but, but it's, it, it did look as though you could have said shut him down and said no put that away let's just leave and that would have been a, a purely talky way through that whole scenario right okay, which is encouraging yeah. yeah which is encouraging the the other uh changes in the demo so they showed more of the the sword which you can hold in front of you and it sort of vibrates and creates like an electromagnetic bubble around you and that stops bullets. Um, but yeah, you can charge and chop people up with that, which is quite good. And mm. a lot of the, 
and the, but that was like super lethal by the way and that wasn't like a damage numbers thing i was like okay you slash this thing and limbs fly off and they go oh my legs uh <laughs> and so, the amazing guy in the demo goes oh my legs as his yeah. head explodes yeah yeah so that was really different in the demo i saw last week at gamescom because that they were using the sword in that and they slid past and they chopped a leg off and the guy, as he was falling over, went, oh, my legs, because he was doing it in slow motion. But apparently in the demo uh, they put out, yeah, they, he gets shot in the head as he's screaming about his well, legs. They, they blow his legs off with a shotgun and he right. goes, oh, my legs. <laughs> and then as they do that, they also shoot him in the head and his head explodes <laughs> like halfway through the phrase. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, which is very good. Yeah. Yeah, like it's a, I, I am genuinely like, obviously if it delivers on what they say, it looks like it'll be pretty spectacular. Pretty yeah, yeah pretty I'm, sort of trying to, I'm just trying to basically temper temper my own expectations i think to some yeah extent. i think it's gonna it's gonna look amazing i'm sure they're throwing so much money at it I'm sure. yeah there are things that i really hope i hope they are aware enough to give you some control over like hmm. there's um there's that moment in the demo they showed where the character kind of wakes up after a three-day bender and there's like a dude putting his pants on and leaving the room and it feels like given that they've gone to the effort of allowing you to choose a male or a female character I really hope they are giving you some control over that character's sexuality just mm. in terms of how you are represented and how yeah, you choose yeah. to represent yourself. Um, because that was, that was a moment of like, really hope that's something that you get to specify. You know what I mean? Because it's like, it'd be so easy for them to like step forward, step back in terms of representation in specifically in CD project right. RPG. So that was mm. a sort of a flag for me. And also specifically because it's something that if you're talking about anything about cyberpunk that really needs modernizing, I think it's that, um, that one of the, like, you know, for all of its kind of futurism, cyberpunk, particularly cyberpunk from the eighties, and I'm not just talking about the paper role playing game here, but this affects snow crash and a whole bunch of other things, mm. um, has an issue with sort of projecting forward into the future, but remaining kind of tremendously heteronormative, like in terms of what, pe- what people are like and, and, and what advertising appeals to and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you can make an extremely generous argument that that is a particular kind of dystopia. You know, and the only thing I've seen successfully manipulate that is the new Blade Runner, right? Which I think is about that which is, to yeah, some extent. For sure, for sure. Um, but, and that is, um, but more, but to be honest, that is because a lot of things that determine what is in cyberpunk is it's because it's what some straight dudes in the eighties thought was cool, and it kind of needs to escape that, mm. right? Like in terms of you know, you have this hyper permissive society, then that has to be represented in in what people desire. And so for that, that for me is something that I'd really, and particularly given some recent, um, sort of pretty bad fumbles in that regard from CD project specifically, I really want them to see them get that right mm. about, you know, like that is a worthy change to the fabric of that world. And I, given some of the kind of the gaze of the camera in that video and that demo, I don't fully trust that it's going to, I'm not being too opaque about that. Basically I'm yeah. worried about the sexism, but that's, mm. you know, that's to be determined. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting how see how they interpret the fact that they declare it as, as this is a mature game. Mm. Great, like we need more mature games, and that's going to mean like casual nudity. It's going to mean picking sexual partners, stuff like that. Stuff that should be in games. So you know what I mean? Like it, 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 mm. games shouldn't uh, have so been so so bad at this for so long. Yeah, if it's an eighteen rated game for adults, like you should be able to have. All the stuff you've seen in a HBO drama turn up in a video yes. game. And, and games are very scared of doing this and they're very scared of getting it wrong. Um, but, and I wonder if like CD Projekt can kind of aim at this. And I mean, based on the early Witcher games and even stuff in The Witcher 3, I imagine they'll miss 
but <laughs> at least they're trying at least you know someone is trying to do the kind of yeah the, the hbo adult you know uh, you mean nipples tom the i think you're nipples, talking about is... i mean nipples in games that are just there and nipples are fine that's, yeah that's, exactly you know what I, mean? I mean and and you know it's essentially what i'm saying is like when you're going to have the cutscenes in your game where someone's pulling their pants on and leaving the room in a suggestive way hmm. that should be able to be any type of person yeah for sure. yeah. in combination with any other type of person or maybe no one hmm. like and that's yeah that's just a degree of like i think that's a degree of um sensitivity that the setting requires now um that it doesn't possess in its original form the, you know because the original is pretty naive in some ways in a way that a lot of you know late 80s early 90s pop culture was hmm. you know like it's certainly not sending cyberpunk 2020 out on a particular hill by itself it's like it, it you know the half the illustrations in that book could be cyberpunk 2020 or any x-man comic from the late 80s right in terms of how people are depicted mm. um and some of that has a kind of kitsch quality to it but it badly needs a kind of representation yeah pass pass yeah um that's true at, at least the kind of angling for it like i'm kind of sick of how sexless games are a lot of the time yeah especially in rpgs and stuff where you're supposed to have a living breathing world like but you're actually basically a kendall <laughs> you know what i mean like mm. uh and it's because like a lot of games have done it so badly and so salaciously but it doesn't have to be that way yeah like, you, there's loads of positive fun ways well to I, I like you know i like the that's that's exactly it i think like i like the idea of being you know sort of comfortable with it enough to have you know a, a, a time skip where your character goes on a three-day bender and wakes up with someone they don't remember the name of yeah if that's the story that you're telling perfect it's just that specific thing of like um presuming heterosexuality on the behalf of the player character is like it's oh god it's so easy to not fuck that up yeah <laughs> like yeah it's true and um yeah that for me was a sort of i don't know i think that maybe sums up my my approach to that entire 40 minute video was like looking for the points of failure mm. because the expectation is so high and I feel like you have to get there ahead of time and, mm. and look critically at things, particularly in a, you know, I, I don't know. I, I was, I'm surprised by the uncritical excitement because we live in, and maybe this is just a tale as all the time, but like, you know, like people got so excited about No Man's Sky and then mm. it became a tremendous kind of, you know, catastrophe for everyone involved in terms of how people were treated. And that's mm. what's ultimately important. And I, I don't, you know, it would be again, and you pointed out right when we started this discussion that CD Projekt Red hit this exact problem last time. They did, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I just really, uh, for their sake, I really hope they're not setting themselves up for a, a pretty scary backlash mm. if the game comes out and there are fifty percent as many NPCs in the streets, right. which is something I can completely imagine. Completely imagine, yeah, yeah. Um, like, yeah, yeah. I just don't want to be sat there next year watching the YouTube side by side video. Mm. It's gonna happen. Where someone nasally intones that this is a, you know, crime reflections of this, this water of different. There's not as much. I actually literally saw some complaints about that for, uh, I think it was the Division Two, mm. where oh no, it was, no, it was Insomniac Spider-Man game. Sorry, um, which is out like next month. I'm quite excited about it, even though it's it's my perfect seven out of ten type of game. Mm. Uh, and I love Spider-Man. Uh, but yeah, that they, they were comparing some footage they put out like this year to some E3 footage they'd put out last year, and it was the same stuff. The lighting was a bit different. It was a different time of day, but people were like zooming in on shots and saying, "Oh, the shadows. There aren't liquid shadows in the liquid here. Like that's this is a big downgrade." Like you betrayed us <laughs> you, know, you know what i mean like what they betrayed they're trying to make the game run on a fucking playstation 4 is what's happened here it just still looks good i mean i don't know there's a kind of obsessiveness about that on, yeah on the internet that's i don't understand 
really. It's funny, isn't it? It's almost like the solution to this from a video games PR point of view <laughs> is to show your game to journalists behind closed doors and then have them write written articles about it. <laughs> Uh, that, that hopefully engage with the fact that it's gonna yeah be, probably be downgraded in ways that you're used to seeing and, and you know, addressing it on that level yeah but but, but um, most importantly don't show anything just right. just words on a page because then then you have to imagine the game um, and then hopefully the journalist is, is reasonable with their expectations and, mm. and fair on both sides and that's fine because um, if you show someone a forty minute video of your thing and it doesn't look like that at the end yeah that is on you that's <laughs> <It's> true <laughs> yeah. it is true yeah I agree with that. But then again, they do reiterate like four times during that video. This is a work in progress. But that feels like someone shouting at a tsunami in terms yeah, of like. Yeah, absolutely. People are going to be doing side by sides for days. <sighs> yeah, that's a little peek at the front of our games mm. in 2019. <laughs> in, the, in the dark future of 2020, whenever it ends up being. Yeah, I, mean, I bet it's miles off. That was one part of your Gamescom, Tom. Was. What else did you do in Cologne? Oh gosh, it was so busy. Um, there are so many things. Uh, I really liked Life is Strange 2. Good. I was very impressed by it. Good. Uh, and it's uh, an interesting sequel because they've kind of left the characters from the first game behind mm. and they're, they're picking up, um, some brothers in a different crisis situation in Seattle, I think they start and, uh, as calamitous events send them on a road trip, uh, down the coast and the episodes will follow them as they go, they go that down there. Um, and uh i after seeing just the intro and how i don't want to describe what exactly happens in case it spoils it for people mm. but just seeing um a 20 minute intro and by the end of it i was so invested in the characters and so invested in their situation and it felt so real and you know um well observed and well written that i was genuinely shocked by the the thing that happened that sends them on the run basically or sends them you know off on, on a road huh, trip cool and uh it was just a very effective um characterization basically just really good mature effective characterization again of like adolescence and a young kid mm. in this case which is what life is strange one did incredibly well and it's interesting because life is strange one channeled a particular uh adolescence in a particular part of the world and a lot of people like made fun of its dialogue and stuff and uh, because you know the heller and the slang and stuff like that you know, it turned out like actually a lot of that stuff was pretty authentic and legit it's just that you don't hear it if you're a british bloke you know what i mean yeah yeah uh, but they just the dialogue between the teenagers in this um just felt completely real and completely right just mm. the terminology they're using the slang the way they were addressing each other the friendships just felt completely real um and the relationship between the the older brother and the younger brother felt bang on as well like in terms of just the the combination of irritation and love and mm. you know that that mix of things felt absolutely perfect and i'm uh, th- i was completely invested after seeing it and i think it's going to be great i think that th- there's like a lot of sensitive um story construction i love to see games addressing real world settings as well and mm. life is strange wanted this fantastic did you um how big is don't nod as a company um i actually don't know hmm don't nod. <laughs> I was running that through the brain. Uh, no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, it, it looks very similar in terms of art style and stuff to the first game. There's mm. some like engine improvements or, or whatever, but the, fundamentally, like the, the the things I'm interested in are like facial animation improvements, things like that. Mm. And that seemed pretty good from what I saw. Yeah, that's cool. It's still a that slightly abstract style. Oh, that's really heartening. Mm. My my basically because I, I when I didn't really didn't like Vampire, right? You know that that other yeah. game. Um, I, I I was worried that. We, what we were about to see was like Telltale 2, right. Electric Boogaloo, mm. where company comes along, makes innovative 
choose your own adventure style game that really captures people's imaginations company then makes loads of them right and the quality drops through the floor i've got a template uh, but the telltale thing was quite mercenary it was like we found a template yeah and it was get most of this as well in yeah terms of how many there were yeah and and uh, um walking dead series one is brilliant really really great stakes great twists and, yeah you know, incredible uh heartbreaking stuff and uh but the, the life is strange to even though it's following different characters and stuff it's also not like trading on a license it's like like life is strange one they're they're building stories from scratch in the first episode does it in that first 20 minutes does it cut effectively from life as teens to a kind of uh nice sort of alt indie song that will get stuck in your head oh yeah yeah was constantly (laughs) they they were very proud about that actually that music transition the first one's great they've commissioned loads of um new music from the same composer i think oh right they used the first one and also they're using pop music as well they're licensing to actually again ground you in that world mm. you know ground you in reality there um yeah they 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 know the form they know what they're doing <laughs> they know what made life is strange so effectively so emotionally engaging and that's all going to be present in the sequel based on what i've seen at gamescom um and it was surprised me really because i didn't expect to care mm. I, I, I like the first game a lot but um i didn't expect to care about a sequel and it's frankly was, was better at storytelling than a lot of television programs i've watched recently that's that's great yeah. that, that, that is really good news. so um yeah very promising uh, awesome. what else did i see i played battlefield 5 <gasps> how's that it. i'm actually genuinely I'm really excited about it now good uh, and i've because I, i've uh, i really enjoyed battlefield 3 played loads of it and um i loved bad company 2 mm. back in the day me too and then i drifted away with battlefield 4 uh, which just felt kind of off and broken to me and yeah, yeah. i didn't like it at all uh, and the kind of levolution stuff terrible word but the kind of the changing levels stuff mm. just didn't work for me at all it just felt super gimmicky and got all old almost immediately um battlefield 1 i kind of admired what they uh, tried to do with it in terms of actually trying to replicate a world war one arsenal and make it feel as rickety and kind of chaotic as it as that kind of early machine gun technology should feel rifle mm. technology um but i also found that very frustrating from a player perspective because i like i don't have the shooter skills to kind of adapt to that really and yeah i, I found it difficult to get along with that's uh, keep talking but that's an interesting point i'd like to return to yeah sure um but uh so this is set in world war Two, and i played a map set uh, a map set in rotterdam and the map was fantastic it was really good there's kind of a, a bridge high bridge running across the map but had some kind of uh, stationary trains on it. So you had snipers that were trying to establish themselves there, but loads of people submachine guns kind of running through those trains and a, a counter battle there. And that, that was just separate from all of the actual control points. There are sub objectives across the map mm. that affect how you spatially control, you know, uh, sight lines and things like that. And the, the changing weather, like a lot of the, um, like when, in the preview I wrote, I said like, I hate the word evolution. It's like the worst piece of marketing ever, mm. but this is what I thought they meant. When they were talking right. about it for Battlefield Four, and there are actually uh, there are dynamic Battlefield element, like uh, not serious Battlefield, mm. uh, dynamic map elements that actually change how yeah. you fight on the map. So one thing is just uh, fog or haze, uh, bright sunlight going down through early morning haze uh, means that you can't snipe across certain gaps. Like I encountered that when I in the two games I played. Mm. Uh, sometimes it will start raining. That's just a nice visual effect, uh, but like. You could also build fortifications, which are like fixed place uh, fortifications, like little sandbag walls and things like that. Uh, and squads can, uh, any squad member can construct them, engineers will do it faster. And I thought, again, that, that that just sounds like such a gimmick. But a lot of points are designed with that stuff in mind. Like a squad has to get there early 
and they're completely exposed. Like you, you're just wide open streets around. The only way you're going to defend that is if you build fortifications. And this creates counterplay because the assault class have like explosive weapons that can break uh, fortifications. There's just loads of extra play. A lot cool. of the, the, the features have added are small, but they, they create extra play rather than just doing a big kind of showy, this big building collapsed, uh, which is what happened in like giant towers and stuff in Battlefield 4. Mm. Um, buildings do collapse in this game as well. The destruction is back in the kind of pumped up so the maps do change and disintegrate in really cool ways as the fight goes on and the guns felt awesome the guns felt much more manageable and forgiving for me as like not a hardcore shooter player to actually use uh, and that was across the board from what i tried even sniper rifles and stuff and i think there it's almost in a, they're easy to use it's almost exaggerated how easy they are to use based on the actual weapons they're representing because mm. world war ii weapons still had you know hangers still were very accurate really um but it felt great as a shooter and it felt good to be able to consistently kill an enemy you got the drop on at mid-range which was something that i never got in battlefield one because i just couldn't like sort of manage yeah. the distances and the, the weapons were so different Mm. Uh, yeah it was great i had a great time with it that's awesome i'm genuinely looking forward to it partly because i went back to battlefield one recently and started having a really good time with it and Mm. i think i spoke about that on the podcast before yeah and the thing that i find i really admire about battlefield one that i hope survives into battlefield five Five. (laughs) somewhat (laughs) um is um how that mid-range is handled and i I suspect i'm repeating something i spoke about on the podcast before Mm. that um uh, I, th- I found that the absence of those super effective kind of mid-range assault rifles that are present in a lot of games was something I really admired about Battlefield mm. 1 because it, it it basically dials up the importance of positioning. And actually, I get what you're saying about like if you're not a super on-point shooter player, then the heavy recoil and things of guns can be off-putting in mm. Battlefield 1. But the flip side to that is that that almost acts as a great equalizer and like <laughs> it becomes slightly more important to get, your, get the drop on your opponent so you're rewarded more for... Yeah. Cunning positioning or stealth or, or that kind of thing. And I really like that. Um, and I like that, um, weakening mid range weapons makes things like shotguns more viable. Mm. Um, because, you know, a problem that occurs in a lot of games, like, um, you know, uh, PUBG is the example of a game that's constantly struggled to find the right balance between weapons that are intended for short range and weapons that are intended for medium range. Cause it tends to be, if you're good at medium range, you're also good at short range. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's a um, destiny. I can think of innumerable shooters where it's the mid range weapons that cause the problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, scout rifles and destiny to the perfect example mm. of like our mid range weapon or like our mid to long range weapon also turned out to be good at every other range. So, right. yeah. you know, a destiny one, it was assault rifles. Mm. Our mid range weapon turned out to be good at every other range. So, um, with these games with older arsenals, I'm really keen to see how you can use that to try and solve that specific problem by not giving you the gun that works, the gun for all occasions. Yeah. But I'm also, but yeah, if, if they have found that balance, then that's super exciting. I think the way uh, Battlefield is 10, uh, when Battlefield's been really good, it gets around that problem through sheer, purely through map design, is that certain parts of the map are going to be dominated by people with the short range weapons. Mm. And this was the case for Rotterdam as well, where one of the points was in a, a clap series of alleyways at the back and your uh, assault rifle in terms of, you know, time to raise it up to sight, mm. like was just way more sluggish than hip firing people with good submachine guns. And in that environment, those weapons tend to dominate shotguns yeah, yeah. dominate. And that's just a, a map design that's thing. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and because of course you're respawning on your, on your squad constantly and you're, you can change your, uh, mm-hmm. you know load out on the fly if, if your squad wants to go after a certain point you can change your weaponry and actually kind of adapt to it um but yeah yeah i i, I like battlefield one. i think maybe the weird thing about battlefield one is that mid-range just means something different like mid-range is just much shorter than, yeah and it's it i'm just so familiar 
with uh, this exaggerated mid-range that uh, Battlefield 5 has, which actually feels a lot more like Battlefield 3, which is actually crazy because that's super modern, you know, weaponry that is, you know, sort of also really high-tech and mm. more effective at greater range. Uh, so it feels like it's, um, I can imagine maybe some like enthusiasts for World War II weaponry being cross <laughs> about how effective some of the guns are based on what I played. But as someone who just wants to casually drop into a shooter and play an hour of Battlefield every couple of nights, it felt bang on for me. It felt really, really good. That's really exciting. Yeah, because it's genuinely like one of my most anticipated games for the second half of the year, mm. I think. Mm. I think it, it could be could be fantastic. And yep, Battlefield Royale as well, eventually. Mm. What was the what was the kind of tone of Gamescom as a whole? Because it's always chaos, but like it felt from from the outside looking in, it felt a little bit light on. It was like yeah, I, I saw Baff- a lot of stuff, and it was busy as it always is. But the, it's really, it felt like deflated by E three this year. It felt like E three really overshadowed it in a yeah. way that you know sometimes doesn't happen at Gamescom. Uh, and it felt like a lot of nothing. Basically, nothing got announced, which is fairly standard for Gamescom. But there's normally some stuff you pick up that is new and exciting. Yeah, it just felt like it was as big as ever. Like it's vast. Yeah. It's astonishing if you ever get to go like the public areas and this. I took some pictures of the um, the public filing into one of the three major kind of entrances, and it's astonishing just the size of humanity that go through that place. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's as a huge and vast and sweaty as ever, <laughs> and exhausting, and just just the sheer kind of presence of so many people is exhausting. Um, but yeah, it did feel a little bit light this year on announcements. Uh, but I think that's because the release season is quite light this year. Mm. Uh, I don't think there's 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 plenty, but I think it's quite weak compared to previous years. So um, we've got like Destiny Two Forsaken expansion, which we're very excited about coming yeah, out next week. Uh, it's like Red Dead Two, Battlefield Five. There's a new Call of Duty. The Smash in December, which is going to be big for people. But that's yeah. not, not a PC thing. But yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I mean, so but apart from that, like, that's kind. That's yeah, kind it's of interesting. It. Like, Assassin's Creed, okay, yeah. But it also feels like um, people sort of saved some of their stuff for like the week after Gamescom. Mm. Like, you know, this week CD Projekt put out that Cyberpunk footage, which could have easily gone out during Gamescom. Like, yeah. no reason why not. They'd have dominated headlines with that exactly. whenever they released it, for sure. Exactly. Um, also, you know, even things like that Nintendo Direct recently, which kind of showed a bunch of PC indie games kind of finding their way to Switch. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> like, uh, Bastion and Transistor and um, Into the Breach suddenly coming out on Switch, things like this that mm. um, are really cool for those games. Uh, again, apparently the time to do that was after Gamescom, not at Gamescom, which, I don't know, is sort of strange. Yeah. You know. I guess, like, because it's such a, um, a consumer-facing show, really. There is mm. a business area that a lot of business and stuff gets done, a lot of press gets done. But it is, like, unlike E3, it is a kind of consumer-focused event in a lot of ways. Like, in terms of the, the majority of people who are using that event are there as consumers to yeah, yeah. go along. So it does feel like it, it's not... It's, it fits in a different... It's serving a different purpose than E3. Yeah, and I guess, um, yeah. I mean, you know, PAX West is... Like this weekend. This weekend. So maybe that's sort of taking some of the air out of the room as well, because yeah. North American developers are probably more likely to save their And increasingly, stuff. like, so it's, it's, um, companies like Blizzard, for example, like the, they're there in force at Gamescom. Yeah, it's crazy, the Blizzard presence. They, they, um, they spend so much money on it. They, half of one of the halls was just a Blizzard world, basically. You go in there and there's a, uh, an entire part of it done up like a tavern, people with iPads playing Hearthstone there. There's a huge chunk of War, World of Warcraft, which I, I'm trying desperately not to play at the I moment. I talked about this last week. <laughs> yeah. 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 I heard you talking about that. I was like, fucking, I'm so the same. <laughs> um, but Warframe is my second job at the moment. So I can't get into World of Warcraft. Good. Uh, and so they, um, yeah. So Blizzard just buy out so many booths and so many places, but they don't announce anything. Like the expansion is 
World of Warcraft expansion is out. So th- they always put out an Overwatch short at, yeah, at Gamescom, yeah. and then there's BlizzCon. A lot of increasingly big publishers are just doing their own thing. Their own yeah, events, yeah. just doing their own weekend thing, their own streams. Yeah, I'm surprised there was never a Destiny Con. Yeah, it's true. Actually, I'd have gone to that. Me too. <laughs> Dressed up as a warlock. <laughs> yeah. around. I just want a cape and double jumped a lot. It's true, actually. That seemed ripe for it. Yeah. During the Destiny one years. Yeah. But maybe just they saw Reddit and were like, no. <laughs> actually, <laughs> we'll no. Do that. If any, I mean, uh, if, if the tenor of a subreddit was based, was based, <laughs> determined the probability for games to get their own events, then I don't think anything would happen. That's very true. That's very true. Lots of, I mean, is Destiny 2 especially is that an especially bitter subreddit? It feels like it. It has become one. It didn't right. used to be. No. I mean, Destiny 1 here, a lovely subreddit. True. Yeah, people helping each other out. I'm very excited about the expansion. Maybe we should talk about that. Because uh, that's out next week. Yeah, I'm very excited about it now as well. Yeah. I, it's, it's been sort of quietly under my radar, which it wouldn't have been if I was, if this was Destiny 1 years, but Absolutely. like now I'm genuinely excited to play it. Mm. Um, because I, because I think it was somebody saying, who'd played it saying like, oh, they've, they've done the Taken King again. And it's like, <gasps> really looks like they have as well like yeah. it looks so much bigger and more fleshed out there's like there's lots of bungee running through it as well just like that they've got law cards now that you pick yeah. up but the cards are in the game so you oh, have to go to the website the best of both worlds <laughs> <laughs> so yeah they've, they've done that right that's a, that's really exciting and um i was really taken by the latest trailers ah. they put out because are uh, just the kind of a cabal of mini oh, bosses. Oh um, god, the latest trailers are such like yeah, so good. They must mean nothing to people who aren't very particularly <laughs> invested in nonsense, Destiny. Yeah. Why is the blue man fighting with the robot man? And that, but it's stuff like if you're into Destiny, um, the, the the character the spider who's like this enormous kind of fallen warrior with four arms on his throne. Yeah, the, the idea that you're taking bounties from him and that like he's a you know a kind of what, like, a, like a jab of the hut basically, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. And, uh, like, as a Destiny player, it's like, yes, that's kind of, that's world building that, that I want from this yeah. game. I want, what Petra is back. Yeah. I remember her. I yeah. did lots of bounties for her and she didn't move from that one point. <laughs> in the and it's, I know it's going to be the same. I know that, I know that fallen guy's never getting out of that chair. Like, he's going to be there for the next hundred hours I play of Destiny. Yeah. But I like Fallen, it. more it's like good. sitting. <laughs> Um, I love the idea of the new dream world, whatever the fuck it's called. Yeah. Uh, it's like a end game area that looks like a kind of dreadnought equivalent almost that happens after you've done the wreath bit of the main story. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they, they always say this, but they say it's going to change week on week. But yeah, I'm into that. I'm yeah, into like too. a specialist end game. And, and the fact that it's digging so deep into like parts of the fiction that people who play Destiny 1 have forgotten to care about, mm. which I'm into because, <laughs> you know, Give me, give me all the law, but gotta bring it back from the giant worm boss in the fucking oh, rubbish God, expansion. Should, uh, gotta drag R. R. it back. R. R. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, the war mind expansion. Ah oh, man, it's like that low point for the series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lowest ebb for me. Like, well, no, I, I think that's unfair. I think it's it like it, never forget the dark below. <laughs> The first expansion for Destiny One. Oh yes. In fact, you have forgotten Dark. I have. That's the yeah, thing. What was, like, what was in it? Yeah. Like it was, it was three missions um, mm. with no ending. <laughs> um, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. So, bad. like, it has. You know, they shouldn't. They shouldn't have farmed out that those levels to a uh, third party. No. Like, I, I feel. I feel for everybody involved in that because mm. I think when you are the third party, you are working for new stuff for somebody else's baby. It's not going to, you know, like, it's yeah. not going to bring out the best in anyone. Yeah. And particularly when you're given control over, like, a huge bit of the fiction and told 
move this forward <laughs> without breaking anything else. Mm. Like, it, mm. yeah. And in fairness, the, um, the actual zones for the War Men expansion were uh, more interesting than the, the Trials of Osiris, the, the Osiris expansion that came yeah, before it. Yeah, uh, the Curse of Osiris. Curse of Osiris, yeah. Which, um, I, I like the story missions and stuff in there, but the actual... You know, it was, it was one big room, and then around the randomized stuff wasn't great. Yeah, every every Destiny expansion should every bungee thing mm. has to manage one moment where you go, "Wow, look at that!" Mm. and it's a big space object in the distance. Um, Curse of Osiris does actually manage that. Uh, I didn't feel like uh, Warmind did mm. because it's "Wow, look at that!" It was just a real big worm, and you've seen sure a big was. worm before, really, in lots of video games. Yeah. Um, uh, but oh, kill the hive god, shot it in his weak point. Oh god, that, that was, <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the effort we went to to kill the last hive god right. we killed, Tom? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember weeks of trying? To go into different, like, mind dimensions to. You have to, yeah, like, that was, that was a little bit of an upsetting subversion of what it takes to kill. Oh, I did I not have to disprove him in the sword realm <laughs> in order to beat him <laughs> to in the terrestrial have plane. to undermine him is, is pure logic yeah. of, you know, you don't have to well actually him to death. <laughs> <laughs> you have to slide into the, you have to slide into Oryx's mentions with such force <laughs> that he dies he and, and falls into the rings of Saturn. That's <laughs> that, which was awesome. That's right? how metal that is. Yeah. That was awesome. Uh, whereas with, um, is it Zol? the worm god yeah uh, a computer just has to give you a spear that fires a laser shoots it at the worm as it flies around incompetently trying to kill you (laughs) awful it's definitely a a phenomena for video game creatures is i'm too big to kill you which is not something that really Mm. exists in the natural world no no oh dear well this one will be good i'm convinced i'll play it for (laughs) exactly 20 hours and then probably forget destiny exists again yeah hopefully they're they're rolling out a new kind of system of updates where it feels like they're going to move away from the incremental expansions and go into just purely a schedule thing of you know that would be seasons. good i hope yeah they, they talk about seasons and which is diablo 3 that game's just gonna be yeah. Diablo 3 one day and the, when they realize <laughs> that's how you do it i feel like i i want that but i also like i'm most excited basically for advances in the story mm. and like this is the thing i find strange about destiny is we're what f- five years four years in now four years in mm. and we're still orbiting the same points like yeah, Aldrin Sov, who's the bad guy in this, was originally supposed to be the bad guy in Destiny One right. in its first script, and then they swapped him out. Mm. That's why he's sort of in the game, but doesn't really have anything to do. Right? He's right. just sort of we made this model, so we're going to use it. Yeah. Um, first game was so disjointed in that way, wasn't it? Exactly, because it was rewritten so dramatically, and so they are revisiting a plot point that they put on the the whiteboard a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. And I want I want something to meaningfully change, but that's a completely different topic of conversation about uh, the strengths and weaknesses of the living Destiny 2's living like as well. story. Yeah. Um, is uh, The fact that the Traveller wakes up and the Traveller is the god being that, you know, basically dictates yeah. what happens in this entire, in the whole solar system. And no one has talked about it since. <laughs> it is <laughs> absurd. If it's being ridiculous. awake means it's sort of glowing and yeah. some bits have come off, but they're, it's okay, they're floating. But it dissolved a guy. It did dissolve a guy. And, and it was like, well, that happened and, and no one's talked about it since <laughs> then. Remember the yeah. one that dissolved a guy? I, I, I feel so much sympathy for this because I like, it's so difficult to do these sorts of like, when you're writing a living story, it counters on a very different scale with Hackmire Twilight. You have these sort of like huge truths about the fiction that players like the traveler is dormant, for example, being one of them. Mm. And 
the, the you can't they're like they're like Chekhov's guns each one of them is a Chekhov's gun like moving that thing along is how you make the player feel that the story is advanced yeah. so having the, the traveler wake up and do something at the end of Destiny 2 is a way of you know saying like look this mattered something changed mm. and then you're like but also it would be really great if everyone could agree that nothing changed <laughs> <laughs> and you end up with this strange sort of like um episode of the simpsons thing where everything goes back to normal at the end yeah. hell or high water the only thing that changed was the skybox and it's a very pretty new skybox but it's the same shit yeah exactly nothing has happened um we're off so wildly off topic now yeah so apologies to anyone who doesn't know anything who doesn't about give a destiny, shit about destiny yeah because uh, there's a lot of jargon and we managed to get spelunky destiny and Dota into this episode exactly so done. it was a proper great and great episode so mm, yeah yeah uh yeah Gamescom, there, there are other bits and bobs um uh steel battalion 2 looks brilliant Cool. I'm embargoed, so I can't say why, but that, uh, <laughs> um, Are you embargoed on the fact that it looks good? I mean, presumably not. I mean, yeah, uh, uh, it's not a secret that it was at Gamescom and I saw it, so okay. it's fine to say it's good. Uh, if they get across that you like it, then I mean, that'd be yeah, amazing. That'd be bizarre, wouldn't it? Uh, but it looks fantastic because Eugene Systems, um, have departed from Paradox, so they're actually independent now, I think. And they've consistently made very pretty and pretty decent RTSs for years now. Uh, and this one looks really, really, really quality, and I'm very excited about it. It's my most uh, most anticipated strategy game, probably up there with Three Kingdoms, which I also played recently. Hmm. That's that's very good, actually. God, this, I've got loads of games. I've seen so many games, Chris. They've all smushed into a kind of blob, but Three Kingdoms looks really super cool. Awesome. And maybe I'll talk about it in a future podcast. <laughs> that's Creative Assemblies. Creative Assemblies. Um, Total War. New what they would call a tent pole total war, one of the big historical ones, basically. Mm. Um, so they did Thrones of Britannia, Britannia earlier this year, which is kind of a, uh, an experiment in zooming in on one particular short chunk of history, but going big on detail with it. Um, whereas Three Kingdoms is based on um, legendary period of Chinese history. It's the first time they've gone to China. It's really cool to... Uh, they're bringing to life all the heroes from the romance of the Three Kingdoms specifically. Mm. So that there's, they've got like a romance mode and a real mode realistic mode i know what you mean when you say romance mode but it makes me think of like <laughs> hatful boyfriend yeah <laughs> like, that'd be amazing. visual novel that'd total so war would be incredible uh romance mode is it's surely the only way to play this game though like um all of the the heroes sound so fucking cool they're really impactful you can c- command them to duel other heroes in the middle of fights and it looks awesome like, it's super good rad super good that's going to be great i think but yeah that and still turning to strategy gaming is going to be good next year amazing yeah is there anything else to talk about i mean the, there's loads of stuff i've seen but I don't know. We've gone on a bit, haven't we? <laughs> it's mostly Destiny 2 chat in Venice. Indeed. Let's do some questions. Let's do it. Our first question comes from Jacob, who writes, Hi all. I was going to wait to see whether the BBC announced another series of Time Commanders, if Chris could mention Chris Bratt's excellent people make games on the subject here, which I have done. Uh, this was a hyperlink when Jacob wrote it, and I can't speak hyperlinks, but I will put a link in the show notes uh, to Chris Bratt's uh, uh, video. Uh, to make this question topical, but since it's been like a year, I'll hook it to the recent International instead. I don't know how much about esports, but behind, besides what I hear from you guys, but the trend there seems to be going the other way. Um, offering players and spectators ever more and more granular stats and crazy VR worlds to play around in while watching. Quote-unquote real meat-based sports seem to be going in this ever more stats-heavy direction too, though it feels like it'd be a long time before we have quite the same level of information. Um knowing just how much more a boxer can take before going down, just how hydrated Serena Williams is, and whether or not an old injury is playing up, whether a footballer doesn't have his head 100% in the game owing to the extramarital affair playing on their mind, etc. Hmm. 
Uh, now, for a variety of reasons related to the conceit, balancing for player experience and being for a general audience, Time Commanders didn't feature any UI, either for the competitors or the viewers. One of the effects of this was that the program's editors could, in theory, take a game where, they, where, where a team was irrevocably losing, the kind of scenario where an experienced player or follower would know the losing team might as well GG, and spin it out to look like the losing team had a decent chance and might make it come back in any minute. Mean it? Minute. My question is whether you think esports have anything to gain from this more minimal approach. If viewers could only see towers remaining and not things like gold or items, would a foregone conclusion of a MOBA match stay engaging for longer? Would watching a Street Fighter match be more tense if you didn't know what special was in the tank or which hit would be the last or merely anticlimactic? If you extended this minimal info to the players, would we see a different playstyle if they couldn't see their health or meters? And would this be an interesting change or would everyone just play so conservatively and say if it'd be boring? Well, sorry if these are stupid questions. My own esports viewing is extremely limited. Bonus question. If you could pick one game for Greg Wallace to shoutcast, what would it be? Thanks, Jacob. And I feel like this is a very, given it's just you and I here t- today, Tom, I think there's, there's an apropos bonus question, um, simply because of how much we enjoyed Greg Wallace as a human man while watching MasterChef yes. in the flat when we used to live together. Yeah, yeah. He's um he's a specimen, isn't he? Did you see the incredible fitness photo of himself he posted on <laughs> no, I did Twitter? Not. I did it's not. just him in, in in shorts and nothing else, doing like a kind of I don't want to see that. walking lunge <laughs> with a huge grin on his face. And if you can imagine that, you can imagine it. it's exactly what you're imagining. Mm. And um, I don't know more power to him. <laughs> um, uh, he's uh, like a sort of yeah, no, just a, a human dessert yeah i'd love to hear him screaming uh your rating over devil may cry 5 that's a great idea yeah yeah he would be very good at that (laughs) oh smashing yeah exactly something like that he would be very good at that yeah that'd be good yeah i think that's maybe the place for him like i can't I mean, obviously, because the thing he shoutcasts is Master Chef. Right? That, <laughs> he that shoutcasts is the, food that he <laughs> yeah, hasn't eaten yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he is, he is the definition of a hypecaster in a way. Like mm. he's, he's paired with other guy from Master Chef whose name completely gone. That John Road. That's the one. Yeah. Um, the actual one who knows about food. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is how good casting works. Yeah, you pair yeah. the, you pair the analyst with the hype guy or girl. That's, that's appropriate. And I think, um, I feel like if, if he were to, if he was a live cast in esport, I feel like, I feel like he benefits from having something to sort of savor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's, he's, sort of he is, he's a very savory man. Yeah. Like. It's also, he's always on the edge of sex noises. And I think that any game that allows him to express that. Yeah. Is, which is where you want So to. which is why I think maybe a fighting game or something very immediate wouldn't, um, wouldn't be the thing because what it's all very, yes, very too. tactical and, but then very sudden. Hmm. Similarly though, I don't think a MOBA would like give him enough individual things. Maybe it would, but. I could see him maybe casting Counter-Strike mm. for those moments where a play comes off perfectly and then there's a sort of giddy rush of excitement followed by sort of like, you know, salivating enthusiasm for the skill displayed in that in that specific moment. Yeah, you need to feel as though you, you need to take a step away from the man. Like, you need to... That's the Greg Wallace. Yeah, like he's become... It. It's a bit too close. Through no fault of his own, he's become like a little bit dangerous to be near out of his excitement for a biscuit. Exactly, <laughs> that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd obviously pair him with any food game. Uh, you'd pair him for Cooks Are Delicious. Anyway. Oh man, uh, Team 17, Overcooked, World <laughs> oh, yeah. Championship Finals. Fantastic idea. Yeah, incredible. Uh, onto the question, the more serious question. Mm. Um, I, I don't agree. Um, but I think there's a question if, I think, uh, I think it's almost a flip it on its head. So I, I do think, I think knowledge, I think, I think, well, I think that, I think Jacob is right when he says that if you deny this information from players, they'll become incredibly conservative. Yeah. 
Um, you see this in, it's one of the reasons that Battle Royale games for all their immense popularity are struggling as esports because that entire format in which is of so much about hide and seek, the obfuscation of information about where the enemy even is mm. encourages conservatism. Fortnite also is struggling with this. Unwatchable in many ways. You know, yeah. There are so many players there and that we haven't come up with vis- visualizations that would allow mm. spectators to be able to even understand what's really happening. In any, in, in if anything, something like Fortnite requires more UI. Like it requires, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, I want to see only 50% of people that hide in this shed make it to the end of the game. Or, you know what I mean? Cause yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that you need that to add some drama to somebody hiding in a shed. Yeah. What I love about the, just the, the massive kind of punditry industry that grows up around uh, meat sports, as we should refer to them in future. Um, the non esports, the real world things. I've seen traditional sport as the, as uh, okay, so as what, the thing. Yeah. Thing. Um, so what I love about the kind of increasing obsession with statistics that you know has been it's true particularly of american sport which i i really enjoy watching american sport mm. um, and baseball is a classic example like whenever players retire they always lambast the fact that the sport's been taken over by nerds who just care about strike percentages and stuff like that but i, I what i enjoy about that obsession is that it's trying to desperately uh control a, a kind of organic blobby uncertain truth of the sport that yeah, can that's never not way to talk about greg wallace that can, <laughs> that can never be that can never be uh understood or mapped out so um there, there are too many variables on a football pitch for stats to ever tell the story of the football game and the, and what's fun about football is the fact that it's so often unpredictable and that a slide tackle can go wrong and a player can mm. be injured and that and it has nothing to do with percentages really like you could you, but you, the um punchy that grows around it not really around football punchy around football is fucking stupid like it's <laughs> it's, it's the worst <laughs> like the an- analysis of football is yeah. the stupidest dumbest shit you've ever seen would have seen. been good if it had gone in then but it didn't <laughs> it didn't <laughs> he kicked that too hard <laughs> it's, it's terrible I mean, you, you watch american uh american sports so i love american football it's great uh the commentators really know their shit they really know, uh, you know, the, the, the form of each player and, you know, their history. Uh, they're completely quizzed up on it. They're like really intelligent. The analysis is often very good. Uh, and it's, you flip over to football and it's like, well, look here. Oh, he's formed a triangle with two others and he's passing it between the triangle. Well, it turns out if you put 22 players on a pitch and they sort of vaguely space out, you could draw a lot of triangles on a pitch. And that's what accounts for punditry in football. Yeah. And, uh, but the statistical thing is about trying to control an organic thing that you can't be, uh, isn't deterministic. But I think that it's completely applicable to video games where it's completely deterministic. Everything is just numbers. To some extent, yeah. And uh, the, there's a lot of, you know, organic play within Dota. Um, but it's ultimately down to ones and zeros and the code of the game, the design of the game, as according to like the, the gods of the game, Ice Frog and the people designing. Yeah. It. Although I think um, what I was going to say is that like it's so much more true for some games than others. Right. Like it's the reason the reason that Hots Heroes of the Storm has always struggled as an esport is because um, Blizzard em- employs a school of design that's kind of all about creating a particular experience for the player. So mm. it's very playbook driven. And often box. that led, leads to, um, pro scene meta games where the game is determined by the first mistake, not the first successful creative Ooh. strategy or something like that. Um, Dota, uh, the best game ever made, uh, if I have to remind everyone, um, is so good. Um, this most recent grand finals is the perfect example of this because its possibility space is so wide and so deep 
that it begins to approach something like organic yeah. possibility. Yeah. And obviously at the bottom of it all, it is still a video game, but it is only even really designed to a point. Mm. Like it's, it's, I think it's, it's more accurate to say that Ice Frog is somebody steering a, a kind of the, the top level of a kind of iceberg that's sort of, you know, bobbing along in whatever direction it kind of wants to go in. Right. Like you can, you can apply some control of it. And, and I've said this before, but Valve is more like, Valve to Dota feels sometimes more like, I don't know, FIFA to football. Like it's sort of like mm. they're responsible for steering this thing, but if they weren't steering it, somebody else would be, you know, like Dota came from the community yeah, and it came from lots of different modders all contributing to one big idea. And therefore it doesn't have the origin point where a bunch of game designers sit in a room and go, here it's it is. Experience. Yeah. 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 That's a really good point. Yeah. That kind of sandbox nature. Plus like Dota 2, um, especially from what I gather of what happened in the latest international, like, comebacks from any gold position seem possible like an experienced position you know i mean to, to let people in on it obviously not everyone's going to go and watch a, a five game grand final this mm-hmm. is only the second time in history that the dota final has gone to all five games nice. but it was won by a team that were no one expected to do anything mm. because they lost you know, in a big drama they lost three of their best players um uh like three months ago and had to reform a team. One of the guys who just won the international, this was his first LAN. And he's wow. now, and he won an $11 million dollar prize. That's amazing. Like, you know, and that is only, weekend. yeah, it's so good. Obviously, I've just given away who wins to no, some extent. Fine, but like, but you know, mechanically, the whole thing is so interesting because, um, in Dota, it is never over until mm. it's over, really. Like, um, you know, Dota has implemented lots of new stats things, talking about simply UI. Dota now has a system where because it has the, the Dota Plus sort of like information aggregation thing where it pulls in all the information from every match that's ever been played and tries mm. to, you can pay a monthly fee to have this algorithm give you advice. Oh, wow. Um, that's, that's what Dota Plus is, the kind of little subscription service they launched earlier this right. year. Yeah. Um, but the other thing it does, you can't see this when you're in a game, but for any game that you're spectating or watching after the fact, it can generate uh, a percentage probability of one team or the other winning mm. at any given time. Interesting. And so this was a new thing this year in the international. This is basically exactly what, what Jacob was talking about in his yeah. question when he's talking about, you know, is it fun to be able to see that? And it is fun to yeah. be able to see that because it, in a good game, it should swing. Mm. And so like I, I won a game of Dota the other day where, and then went and watched the replay because I'm sure it would have been close where the game said I had a 6% chance of winning it. Right. And it was this, I mean, I've had, you know, maybe three games like that in, sort of six years of playing dota so you know that's not doesn't happen every day yeah. but to have it ratified by that stat makes that feel better to go and think like the algorithm thought this was 94 percent in the other team's pocket right like for me to then win is amazing and then you see it at ti where you see the the bar has swung 80 20 mm. and then the other team pulls off something spectacular and then when they next show the bar and it's 49 51 wow, the yeah. crowd goes mental because awesome. it's like holy shit the maths have moved <laughs> and yeah, in that cool. case um actually removing ambiguity consulting and the computer saying yes mm. is is actually more exciting. Having access to that information is more exciting. It's always, uh, it's, it's mapping the story of the game more precisely. Yeah. It's just showing you, like, it's, it's creating extra drama points by just simply mapping it accurately. Mm. Uh, and it's almost, you know, percentage predictions are so f- fallible anyway. Um, the, the movement itself is the, the narrative of the game, not the really kind of. Yeah. It's, the, I mean, the graphs is the point in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think, like, I don't think this is necessarily true of every game and I'm aware that I've used this as an excuse to talk about Dota. Like, I can imagine being in the position of the time commanders producers, <laughs> given a game where there isn't, an, you know, it's very one-sided or something, having to spin that into a story. That's definitely a thing. Um, 
where adding a bit of ambiguity probably helpful, but it's a very different goal. I feel like um, this might help. I mean, this is the thing. I think it might help game. This is not to say that Total War isn't well designed, but like this would probably genuinely help games that were fundamentally not very well balanced for this for competitive play. Right. You can create that ambiguity, mm. but it wouldn't last very long before you realized that the same yeah. sorts of things tended to happen in every game or, or whatever. Mm. Um, I think with fighting games, because so much of the information is so much of the drama of what's happening is very fast play by play, tiny decision making mm. as, as spectators, you need access to all the same information the players have to understand why they're making the decisions yeah. that they're making. Yeah. So you get the drama of knowing whether or not someone is choosing or not to expend their special bar or whatever it is. Uh, if you don't see that they have a full special bar, then you have no context for why they're playing in a particular Maybe way. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. Or at least, well, you might make sense. Oh, he's blocking a lot, but you don't know what it means to be blocking a lot when you've still got a full super bar. You might be trying to bait someone into it. Yeah. Or yeah, in an, yeah. an opening. Like, I think it's an interesting question, but I'd definitely come down on the side of like more data, more bars, please. Yeah. I don't think it's hurt any sport to introduce more data and more science, more information. I think, I mean, I think there's a certain, like, I feel like maybe the art of British football commentary. Um, fucking need some data <laughs> yeah but it hasn't like like well like british news it hasn't survived alan partridge at the day-to-day in chris morris like <laughs> no, things that were so effectively parodied in the 90s that they've never recovered never from recovered. how never changed though yeah, exactly never changed either it's just like I well mean, it's the same as it was in the 70s and maybe that's part of the appeal right like, football is this stable thing yeah. that nostalgically people i think I, I, my i'm not a huge football fan but my my experience of football is almost universally like, it's always on the background somewhere mm. and it is just the same tone of a man going uh like that like whatever you're saying basically fits into that yeah, cadence of like yeah. uh and then something happens or doesn't <laughs> and then it's a lot of that followed yeah. by hey and that's it that's football yeah i, I mean uh, it might just be that we're very badly served by english commentators <laughs> in in britain uh I, i'd love to see it i'd love to see it improve that sport yeah. deserves better i do like the sport simulate football in your own home by just saying a list of surnames in a kind of tre- slightly trepidatious That's tone. It. Just naming and then the cheer. person on the ball <laughs> yeah, exactly. over and over again and literally I not remember, saying anything about I remember the game. being really intimidated by that as, as a kid who was surrounded by people who, who loved football in Liverpool where like mm. there's, there's a lot of football all the time and not really getting it. Right. But also, um, like not knowing how the commentators know what everyone's name is and, um, and believing that that was really essential to being able to follow the game of football. Yeah. So it's just, um, you know, that if you, you know, like, the football was a game where someone goes, like, McManaman, <laughs> McManaman, over and over again, and yeah. that's very important. Um, whereas what would be really useful to me as a, like, eight year old would have been someone saying, if he kicks it now, it's got a 20% chance of going <laughs> in. <laughs> yeah, I, so, um, this is such a divergence, but, uh, like, the biggest sign of the fact that football commentary in particular has not moved on uh, since forever is the fact that HG television has been invented. And I can see what the names are on the shirts <laughs> by looking at the screen in HD. It's like Fellaini is on the ball now. I know it's Fellaini. He's massive and he's got dumb hair. I can see it on my HD television. I don't need to know that Fellaini's on the ball because I can, it's there. The information is there visually. But they, they, there's, they literally have nothing else to contribute uh, apart from, you know, 
Oh, well, you know, there's loads to say about football. Like, football is a fascinating game. Mm. Uh, as I say about you know, the formation a team plays in, the, the varying strengths and weaknesses of national football. Like, there is there is national identity in the way football is played, and that's really fascinating. And all you get is... And that's... Fuck it into a Fuck it into a bin. I hate it. It just needs to be better. Needs to be better. Get better football. Get better football. Get good football. That's how that one ends. <laughs> Get Greg Wallace in. Yeah, he'll do a better job. He'll sound more excited than most of them do as well. Next question uh, comes from Russ, who writes, I'm now drawing to the end of my fourth playthrough of the whole podcast. Oh my God. Don't judge. I'm not mad. I'll just say that I find your voices oddly calming in stressful times. That's incredible. <laughs> That's incredible. We've done like maybe on. a thousand hours of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so if there's a, some sort of like national emergency, maybe they could just play us, play us out on radio. Yeah, exactly. And everyone could just sort of chill out. Why would that calm people down? I'm not, ju- I'm not judging I, your I decisions, Russ, but I don't get why what you find us calming. I don't know. Maybe it's, um, maybe boring is the word he's looking at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There we go. Nailed it. Um, uh, I'd thought that the Dishonored 2 lock-in episode was the most audibly drunk you would ever be, which is, that is the most, Sent, that's the best like that that should be our itunes description <laughs> or to be drunk <laughs> um in episode 200 you heroically managed to get even more inebriated imagine my delight when you surpassed yourselves again in episode 250 that was a mess tom wasn't it it was a mess but it was really interesting because alex ha- had not had a drop that's alex's superpower that's not what he does that's his it? secret like, like the whole drunk ki- as the people like, around him. like that's like you know that's his secret cap yeah. he's always drunk yeah, but it. he's not though that's the thing he's just alex and he just scales with that, i think yeah yeah it's um, impressive uh, yes. Russ's question is, and it is a bit of an inside baseball question, but it's, um, what happens to the Crate and Crowbar podcast when your livers cry enough, no more booze? Yeah. The answer is we just keep doing it. We just finally grow up. I mean, like, well, the answer is that we just go back to being the PC Gamer podcast. I mean, there is a PC Gamer podcast now, yeah. which is stress, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we always did that, obviously, so we brought work. <laughs> which is why we, we were still employed. Which is why initially we were so thrilled by the novelty of being able to have a drink while yeah, we did a podcast. And true. then, like everything, that was just sort of an accident that became a bit. Which is yeah. the entire structure of this enterprise. That's yeah, that's really true. I, I often wonder about like the strengths and weaknesses of booze on the pod, and whether it puts people off, or whether you know it, it's, it encourages more interesting conversations. I, I think I feel like I I, I appreciate that I, I'm so very opinionated about this because I have a very particular taste in, in podcasts. But mm. um, this um, I feel like if you're not going <laughs> to maybe this is too inside baseball. If you're not going to aim for a level of slick kind of thirty minutes and done production right. and editing of a TV hard, quality, break hard the other way. That, yeah, that uh, you can aspire to. Then the other thing you can furnish is two and a half hours in the other direction. Right, and that's very much more more in our wheelhouse. I feel in terms of you know not to say we couldn't put something slicker together, but we do that in the day job. Yeah, we don't have the time. Like we could, we could do the the, the sort of you know, um, mm. this American Life equivalent of a games podcast. I don't know who I was talking to. I know who I was talking to. It was um, a guest we had on on one of the rest podcasts. Maybe we'll be listening to this. Uh, David K, um, mm. who's uh, working on Phoenix Point at the moment. Yeah, uh, with Julian Gollop, um, who said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing. So apologies if if I paraphrase you wrong and you're listening to this, but um, said that the thing he liked about the podcast was that. You know, we talk quite in depth about some game design stuff that could potentially get quite sudish and 
tiresome and yeah. i imagine anyone who finds it soonish and tiresome has probably stopped listening to the crane well, by yeah, now i think that's part of the but thing as well one thing that takes the edge off is the fact that by the end of it we're hammered <laughs> so it we can't kind of like end on a self-congratulatory sort of like well we're another it's another smart games. decision in the bag there tom <laughs> another great you know it's almost like it's basically the drunk history of game design, mm. which is we fixed by a shock again. In the <laughs> yeah, time to yeah, retire for the evening. Yeah, you know, like look how competent we all are. Like pointedly, we always end on look, we're idiots. Anyway, yeah, bye. It's an epic act of self-deprecation, and that's not an act. You know, that's no, no, that's no, true. It's like it's almost like the veneer falls away. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean. The point you make about if you don't like it, you know, stop listening a long time ago is joke. <laughs> like, mm. you, you can't really uh, listen to our podcast for more than 10 minutes without being either infuriated by it or interested That's in true it. <laughs> of all podcasts, Tom. That's inherent to the form. It's a good point. I listen to a lot of them. I, I think the thing I really like about podcasts, and I've been thinking about podcasts a lot recently because mm. it's one of my favourite mediums at the moment. Uh, and the reason is because I feel like it personally connects me to the friendships and camaraderie of people all over the world that I would never ordinarily yeah, yeah. hear from. And, uh, I, I, there's a, a huge wealth of excellently produced podcasts that are, you know, gen, great journalistic weight and mm. integrity, great true crime stuff. Um, but I, I really enjoy the goofy stuff and friends hanging out. And there's something quite nourishing about that. that it kind of almost restores my faith in humanity that, you know, there are people sharing jokes and good times mm. and I can place more frame and listen to their goofs the basically the answer to the question right? if if we were all to stop drinking one day the podcast would definitely keep going like oh yeah otherwise yeah, it yeah, says yeah. something rather questioning about the podcast but yeah, yeah. for sure i mean uh, most of them are relatively sober um uh, russ's bonus question is why do listeners always write bonus questions as if they are a bonus for you surely they're <laughs> just more work um it's so right. actually i like bonus questions the only problem with bonus questions is often someone will as this literally just happened mm. someone will write a really thoughtful long question and then a silly bonus question and this is how we find ourselves talking about greg wallace for a long time for a long time and so in a way it's not hurting us because it's like you'll ask something super smart that requires probably a bit of real thought and research at a point in the podcast where we are the most not drunk quite capable. um and then you'll say and here's an easy hook to talk about master chef yeah like you're giving us you know you're setting up a trolley problem and in one direction is <laughs> like we can run over greg wallace and in the other direction we can run over the entire art of football commentary <laughs> and the art of i think you know one thing we managed to do consistently is run over one track and then in in a, in a strange solution to the trolley problem reverse <laughs> and go down the other one as well yeah the solution that people don't necessarily think of mm. um although Take i think i've nicked philosophy. that joke from the good place but um but yeah um like, uh, I forgot what I was talking about, but nonetheless, it's not, you know, please do send as many bonus questions as you like. Yeah. Um, but just yeah. be aware we might answer that one instead. Questions that are one sentence are very good. That's what I would say. Yes, they are. I mean, thank you for your many paragraphs, everyone. Yeah. But occasionally the old one sentence question is very good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Russ concludes by saying, keep on plodding, but maybe try a soft drink or tea occasionally. Okay. All right. Good Dad. advice. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah. And, um, and hello again, Russ, as you encounter this episode for the fifth time. <laughs> uh, let's see. Our next question comes from Chris, who writes, Dear Fun and Pun Bar, I was cleaning up my desk today and found two beta codes for Battlecry, Bethesda's first-person class-based shooter thing that made its grand debut about two days before Overwatch was announced and was never heard from again. <laughs> what are your favorite games that don't exist? <laughs> uh, regards, Chris. Um, P.S., Level two doors is the best upgrade in FTL because it lets you trap boarders in airless rooms to die. 
That is in response to something from last last that's, week. That's, that's like a Quentin Grove bar questions e ebooks account. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Start delivering statements like that. Um, yes. So best game that doesn't exist. Um, Titanfall two. Hang on. Titanfall one. What? Both of those games exist, Tom. Yeah, but they vanished almost <laughs> immediately in the similar. Titanfall two didn't. You can still get a game. Okay. Okay. I checked recently. Oh, very recently. okay. It's quite busy. Go back. You should. Because Titanfall was... one. Because that that was crushed by a release schedule as well. Yeah. Similar way. But it did come out. It did come out, I suppose. <laughs> so what did Bethesda just kill that as soon? As... I think it. I think it was cancelled. Yeah. Mm. That was the Victor Antonov. It was art thing, It was Victor Antonov's Team Fortress Two, basically. Right. Yeah. Game. Mm. There's there's a version of the Thief reboot mm. that might have been good sometime in that process. Mm. At some point, like over its many many iterations under many different dev teams one of those games probably quite good i'm gonna say mass effect andromeda 2 oh yeah not that it was ever announced no but someone would have been thinking about it yeah and they're not thinking about it now uh dawn of war 4 because mm. that i think that series is probably that's a huge shame because i liked dawn of war 3 i like dawn of war 3 i uh the, the the reasons for its failure are quite complicated and rooted in a lot of um the core audience's expectations and how they were managed in the run-up to its release, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that apparently you're allowed to completely reinvent your strategy game once, but you can't do it twice. Mm. Depending on your audience. Depends on your audience. Yeah. It's, it's really... It was, that was a really interesting clash between uh, expectation, uh, expectations and the game that was actually made and the fact that, you know, the mode they opened with was associated with MOBAs and was associated and the way the heroes were presented were associated with MOBAs which was somehow um, very unpopular among that community for uh, it's and just ah oh god the, there's just a lot of kind of um, it, it was it was a shame there's a lot of good design work and that game is really cool yeah, with yeah. lots to recommend it and uh, it got kind of buried by uh, by all that stuff and even stuff like the clash between the like the trailer they put out which is one of the best pieces of sort of Warhammer 40,000 uh, mood piece yeah mood piece imagery uh pieces of work is astonishing and you know uh games workshop probably couldn't have done a better job than that team did of um creating that trailer but then the actual tone of the game was far far different and the way it was visually presented was more reminiscent of starcraft 2 which is obviously at some point probably was an intentional decision to try and capture that market but nonetheless it all backfired in a complicated way and ruined a destroyed a good game mm. i think mm. Yeah. So, sad, really. Yeah, it is sad. Because they're, they're, there's no way they didn't have, like, a massive run of expansions planned for that to add, like, new factions throughout. And I'd love to see what they did with new factions, because the yeah. factions were really different, and they mm. were, really, like, strategically really interesting. Uh, so I'd love to see what they that team would do with Necrons, or what that team would do with something else. Yeah. Ooh, EverQuest next. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, whenever... <laughs> So the, we've talked about this on the podcast before. When developers come up to you and they say, "Oh, we've got a completely malleable world that completely yeah. that reacts to all your decisions, and everything is destructible," and you immediately go, "It's never going to happen." Oh <sighs> God, I I feel for that game, and I feel for Sony Online Entertainment slash Daybreak a bit as well because mm. they seem like I really like that company. Um, not like in a weird way. What I'm talking about, but like I got a good vibe. There's certain there's certain game companies you get a good good vibe from, right? Like, um, and I I remember being i was in vegas at their show slash party when that game was announced and like 
they really did want to make that game and they had employed so much interesting technology and thought this is you know no one's talking about it at the moment but there was a couple of years at gdc when people were talking a lot about sort of modular procedurally generated sort of narrative structures for tracking consequences through dynamic games and all these things i imagine those things are still being in developed somewhere but they've gone a bit quiet in terms of who's talking about what and when yeah Uh, sort of stuff that um like ken levine went off to do that kind of thing Mm. And all of this stuff was sort of being kind of brought together. And I saw it in a few different contexts and it did, it did work, you know, like whether or not it would have worked, I don't know. And there are other business reasons why it kind of, you know, uh, it's for me, it's kind of emblematic of like the end game of like a particular kind of ambitious MMO that has, was first up thwarted by sort of what I'd call kind of like content led MMOs like Destiny or World of Warcraft. And then secondly, by just make Daisy, just make Daisy. Don't, don't make this. Make Daisy. Oh, now make, make Battle Royale. Like whatever form that takes. Don't, don't try this. And that, that strikes me as a bit of a sort of like a shame. I put, um, in, in, you know, in the same big old bucket of shame, um, I'd put a uh, Planet Side 3 as well. Right. Yeah. It's the similar kind of scope of thing that mm. probably won't get made now because just don't, that's not a profitable way of attempting to solve a game problem. Yeah. Red Faction Gorilla 2. Mm. That would, that would be a series you could resurrect today. I wonder if they are going to resurrect it. I mean, the, the way that that's like the Red Faction game they made after Guerrilla was, uh, why would you, I, I don't will, understand. I will, I'm going to make my case for them. Re- they are hiring at the moment, Volition, right. and they did just re-release Red Faction Guerrilla. Yeah, that's true. And with today's technology, that you could really knock down a hill. Fucking splendid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was, that was a, a very, very fun game that deserved, like, just, it's because like it was leveraging technology that, you only see in stuff like Just Cause. It has to be used quite frivolously. Do you mean when when big scaffolding things fall over? Big scaffolding things, they topple, and it's fun. Uh, and that deserves to be expanded yeah. with lots more things that can topple. Pushing over Meccano, the game. Remember, um, so like the new Crackdown game's coming out next year, I think. Is it? Uh, well, it's never coming out probably. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, it's uh, originally they showed it, and it was like Microsoft's cloud technology is going to empower building collapses, and that seems to have just vanished out of the game. Like, it doesn't seem to be. It doesn't make any sense, at Tom. Is that why? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, again, like you hear these things over and over again, and you just roll your eyes. You know, it's not. That's not real. It's not going to happen. Um, but I still, I want that through the power of Bing. <laughs> you're going to be able to build a bridge anywhere you like in the level, and then blow it up. Um, yeah. So, look, yep. Uh, Red Faction Gorilla 2. Maybe it is happening. That's, I mean, Volition are hiring, and if, if they're hiring for Saints Row, then amazing, but. Oh, yeah, I'd love to be a Saints Row 5. That's another one. Yeah. We're just naming sequels we want. Yeah, that's true. There are many. Deus Ex Universe? Yeah. That didn't happen. That was sort of announced and didn't happen. I feel really bad for Mankind, Mankind Divided, because it, it had its flaws and stuff, but it, it was still like, uh, it felt like it deserved an extra year or two in the tank. Mm. to have the chance to get become the Deus Ex game with all the hubs they wanted to put in, if you yeah. know what I mean. Like, felt both Human Revolution and Mankind Divided were hampered by a, a grand vision that was just curtailed a few too times too many during development. Like, a few yeah. too many cuts, a few many zones gone, a few many plot points removed. And then they both came out of the tank feeling just sort of, like, almost half finished. Human Revolution's very good, I really enjoyed it, but Mankind Divided definitely felt like it had holes in it and things that hadn't gone right mm. shame mm. but i mean let's say cyberpunk kind of looks like a deus ex game yeah it really does actually. so yeah. yeah instead of a vent there was a window 
and that opened up into another corridor. It was basically an event. Board events and games. Board events. Hmm. I think we've answered that question. Paul. Good. Uh, <laughs> next one comes from Joe who writes, so Ikea is designing a gaming chair. I assume this is true. It might not be. I, mm. I guess it might be a bit. Uh, maybe it's a bit. I don't know. It's either true or a bit. Those are the two states. Any okay. matter can exist in. Uh, what features would you suggest in an ideal gaming chair? Bonus points if you can make up a name for your chair. Okay. Mm. So I'm, I'm sat in my Ikea office chair at the moment, which is a particular one like everyone I know has. Yeah, it's like, it's like a throne. It's pretty rad. It's really good. It's um, it's, I don't know what it's called. I've mm. forgotten. I could probably look under it, but no one wants to hear me do that on this podcast. Mm. So um, it has the features of being a chair with a, a nice comfortable back and a comfortable seat uh and arms it's all and wheels. yeah it's it's like you know i've sat in a lot of gaming chairs i don't understand those things i don't it's like you know the the really like heavily marketed they, they they try to look like sort of racing car yeah um and you know there's there's a case to be made for that mm. but personally i don't think i would find a place for one in my office environment no. Um, in terms of features you would want in a gaming chair to, to occupy while living your gamer life in front of your gaming rig. What? What's your gamer zone that you're trying to establish? What's the vibe? Um, I would like, so. Neon be, lights. <laughs> go faster stripes. Yeah. No, I mean, I, so let's think. What annoying things could you solve using the chair? Um, it'd be really good if the chair had like a wireless USB hub in it. Mm. So you don't have to go looking for a USB port. That'd be good. Yeah. So stuff like, uh, I'm constantly plugging and unplugging headphones in and out of various things. And I'd like that just to be in the, the arm of a chair plug. Yeah. That'd the be arm good. Of chair and have the sound. Come Ooh, out of that. Here's one. How about, so the chair has motorized wheels, right? Mm. And so, because if you're doing a lot of VR, you have this issue with, needing to set up the game. So let's say you want to play Elite Dangerous in VR and you're setting up the game at your PC and you're putting the headset on at your PC, but your optimal VR position is more like sat in the middle of the room. And so you end up in this weird kind of waddly, awkward dance of trying to get the headset on and the mm. game loaded, which requires you to be at your keyboard while also then sliding yourself back into the middle of the room to get into an optimal position. It's doable, but like a lot of VR things, it's inelegant. Why not have a chair that will you sit in and then when you're ready, it just drives you. It just wheels like, itself it's to like the Roomba, optimal VR place. Like yeah. a Roomba you sit on that yes. solves your VR problems. Yeah, exactly. Is nice. that too much to ask? I think uh, not. <laughs> good. Um, that would be good. Uh, let's see. Um, hmm. I want, pan- <laughs> I, want, I want like, so you know, like car seats. Yeah. They warm uh, up. Yeah. The, the fancy ones, they get hot. I don't want that. I want the opposite. I want like cooling. I'm in constant need of personal cooling. And I think a chair could do that. Right. So a sort of refrigerated gamer chair. Yeah. For when it gets hot (laughs) online. Yeah. When it gets hot online, you've got to have that cooling chair. How does that work uh, physically? Because of how matter works. Uh, I mean, yeah, (laughs) Uh, that would be a constraint, but uh, maybe some fans that could flip out and and, and fans, fans yeah yeah it could um it could release it could be like plugged into the water main and it kind of just fills itself with <laughs> no it fills itself with icy water or something yeah yeah it could it could yeah um <laughs> it, we are getting into some of the features of a more advanced bidet at this point yeah i mean i, I take it um if gaming chairs could move more towards that and away from the racing car thing yeah 
Yeah, that would be good. Um, <laughs> yes, a luxury toilet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You sit on and play games. Great. Yeah. Um, it's the lifestyle. Tom's Warframe throne. <laughs> exactly. Man, I'm hitting that game hard at the moment. <laughs> so good. Yeah. The um, Well, I, I suppose if that was the case, then the, the chair would have to be called the Poop Sock. In, yeah, in honour in of, honor of Owen Hill. Hill. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's it. New from Ikea. I mean, uh, he is. He lives in Sweden now, so he can maybe deliver this to Ikea HQ. Word, yeah. Can't he? yeah, yeah. And maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe poop socks too, uh, too gross, too grotesque. Just Owen. <laughs> <laughs> the poop sock does sound like it could be an Ikea chair, though. But it would be like P U P P U P with an, like an umlaut over the U. Yeah, and then sock. like S O K. The poop sock. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it would good. be good yeah no i think that's that fits, that fits. yeah that fits um yeah that's fine that's 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 certainly adequately answered that question uh and we get bonus points because we came up with a name as well good job us our next question comes from uh rob rob the rat roaster i don't think this is his real name who writes dscnc what's with people paying uh, playing a £15 game for a 1,000 hours, then reviewing it poorly on Steam. How do these people calculate value? Regards, Rob Rob the Rat Roaster. <laughs> no game survives thousands of hours without complaint. And it, maybe some people just like to fixate on the things that irritated rather than the things that... Uh, I guess like. so. I mean, it's a weird one. I think uh, the issue here may simply be that human beings have an on and off relationship with perspective <laughs> like um and i think actually a broader issue which is that reviews user reviews one of the issues with user reviews is that user reviews are almost always motivated by some momentary feeling hmm. like steam can probably coerce the odd person into writing a user review just because hmm. get a badge or something for doing this but most user reviews fall into either the category apart from like a subset of people who genuinely like in leaving a review for things which is to be commended fall into the category i hate this for possibly a fleeting reason or i spent a lot of money on this so god damn it i'm gonna like it and that is a it's all forms of user reviewing have that problem like mm. the the good thing about a critical uh, critic reviewing something is that person has been paid to do that and you might think that's a corrupting influence but it means it's their job to to do it right and do it relatively dispassionately with a bit of perspective Whereas if, if you have played a game for a thousand hours and it does something that really pisses you off or, or it gets a patch you don't like, then that's probably going to be the thing that finally gives you the energy to write a paragraph, an angry yeah. paragraph in the box on Steam. Yeah. There's also a phenomenon where like this happens with like TV shows and stuff where it's this thing you love for ages and then it changes a bit and then suddenly it's not the thing you've loved and mm. deserves to be punished. So that's the moment where you go in and like review something badly. Instead of just sort of stopping playing it and moving on with your life, you've some sort of urge to punish the thing for not being the thing that, you know, you've yeah, yeah. for so long. Uh, I think that's definitely a real thing with lots of, um, also entertainment that wants to engage this for over a long period where often it goes bad in that period. And then at that point, you know, this is it's such a big trade by it. <laughs> yeah. This is such a, like a clear issue with the wisdom of crowd thing that Valve and many other companies kind of want to think is it want to pursue is that it's, it's so difficult to reliably get people into a position where they offer a balanced viewpoint hmm. on something that they have experienced. Hmm. Like you see this a lot with Google. Like if you use Google apps and things and it harvests all of your data and follows you around and all the rest of it, particularly if you have a Google phone, hmm. you know, it almost tries to catch you out with leaving reviews for things. So you'll be getting the bus and you haven't told it you're getting the bus, but it's determined based on your movements that you're on this particular bus route. And it's almost always right which is eerie, it'll go like, how's the bus right now? 
like it, you know pop up on your phone will say like you join this bus is it was it late and in that moment because you it has caught you out you have no incentive to go actually i fucking hate this bus hmm. you know because last week it was late three times or whatever none of that kind of build up of animosity that leaves makes you finally leave a review um and that is clearly it's both obviously intrusive but it's also in pursuit of trying to catch you at a moment when you'll actually give a yeah, specific emotional a specific data point mm. whereas actually sort of non-emotional in a way but really all any of it is is feeling when people play a game for a thousand hours and then yeah like they add fucking you know borgar the rock mancer and he's bullshit <laughs> so this is when i'm going to finally yeah your most emotive point and the thing is when you i think it's just human nature that when you really enjoy a thing and you're at your highest point that's when you set you just enjoy that feeling and you don't feel compelled to go and write it down on a website somewhere you just enjoy it in the moment whereas feeling disappointed for some reason complaining is just like something very rewarding about complaining about something like it's a dopamine hit in and of itself Mm. and um like knee-jerk review platforms suffer from that enormously because people get something off their chest and feel good about themselves by complaining about a product and it doesn't matter whether that's a reasonable complaint it's almost like a dopamine hit for that person yeah it's almost like the the denouement for 15 quid well spent (laughs) (laughs) You get to take a big poo on it at the end. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I, I do find the Steam reviews, um, not individually useful, but like as a kind in of. In aggregate, yeah. In aggregate, like as a trend, I, I have found that useful as a, a, someone buying stuff on Steam. Uh, and it, interesting, um, to measure just like whether a, a game is good now versus not good ages ago. So like Warframe, for example, is like yeah. incredibly highly reviewed now and it might not have been an, on launch. And that's, that's interesting context to have and useful context for a customer to have if they're buying a game, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, it's just, you do get a lot of nonsense in it. <laughs> like, um, oh, we have, um, a fun, an interesting relationship with this with Hackmud because obviously we pay very close attention to those reviews. Yeah, of course. And like, you know, it, it and so, you know, obviously I've talked about it, but it is also a real thing. People do, you know, people leave reviews based on those feelings and you certainly shouldn't discard those feelings as a developer. I'm not saying mm. that. It's just, you know, you'd love it if everyone gave a very nuanced review but people often just say i hate this thing hate this thing mm. and we get that with hackman because hackman can be a very unforgiving game like uh this actually genuinely informed uh, i redesigned and rewrote our store page twice in the last year once for just because it needed it and the second time when we did the 2.0 update and um i ended up changing the tagline for the game mm. which we you know wasn't set in stone but the reason for it was um you know because of the type of game we have it's it is for some people and it's not for everybody not every game not obviously not every game for everybody but you know if it is a it's a game about sort of computer systems and programming and this particular say it's a text game there's all these different reasons why people aren't necessarily going to enjoy it but one of the reasons that is i think a standout feature of the game but catches people out is the fact that it is happy you know try and teach you through the intro to the game tell you many times in the course of the game that it's a it's an mmo but one where you can absolutely lose everything yeah um and um you know the truth of it is you can't lose everything because your knowledge as a player is maintained it'll be much faster to get your money back the second time but one mistake can cost you everything mm. if you I mean that is that is part of the appeal and it's but it's a thing potential switch off point for a yeah player. and it is and but it's also a very emotional switch off point we've had several yeah. negative reviews where someone says i played this for for 25 hours and then i ran the wrong script by accident and someone got my lock which allowed them to crack my system and they stole all my money and upgrades and i feel like i've been reset back to level one and i completely understand that emotionally 
you know yeah to go to the end of 25 happy hours and go actually this game mm. but i also feel like i feel like through in-game means we you know it's minor spoilers but the end of hatmos tutorial you lose everything and it's basically to like make sure that we control the first time <laughs> in right. that happens right i see so it's like get used to this this is kind of what this game's about it's like you know it's a, you know like you know it's it's it you know ideally it feels like that run in in dark souls where you lose shitloads of souls and you feel horrible mm. for an hour and then you go back and you play it again and you realize that was part of the experience that's yeah the ideal but i appreciate that some people won't come back from that um but then in when we re- when i rewrote the store page it was specifically like made that essential thing in the game like mm. made it because not because i want to apologize for it but because i want it to make it even harder to not know that going in yeah so to increase the frequency of positive reviews not by taking away the thing that made people feel negative about it but by making it even more obvious that that was going to be the case almost don't buy the game if you're not okay with the idea of losing everything Mm. Um, because i would rather you bought it and had a good time than bought it and then discovered this 20 hours in as this person may have done lose everything get it back which is that is the tagline for hackmud um so uh actually did you just come off the top of your dome i did that is the tagline for hackmud lose everything get it back is is, really is the tagline i wrote holy crap that's eerie that's weird I genuinely just came up with that. Yeah. Fuck. That is the, yeah. the hive mind. Yeah. That's, we've done this for too long. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe so. Um, but yeah, nonetheless, that's, and that's why. Um, our final, uh, question, more like a request, Tom. Oh. And it comes from Alex. And if you, if you listen to last episode, you'll remember Alex as the questioner who, uh, 11 days before we recorded was expecting a baby. Oh, yeah. And um, we obviously sent our best wishes. <clears throat> Alex writes, uh, Hello, lovely people. On episode 251, you read out my question in which I indicated that I'm soon to become a father. I now am. Mm. Evidence attached to many thanks for the good wishes. Smiley face. And he attaches a very adorable picture. Congratulations. Of, uh, human baby. That's fantastic. Congratulations on baby. However, this brings me to a minor request. When writing my previous email, um, name checking, which was about uh, trying to enjoy... Um, sort of finding time to enjoy long games mm. now with a changing life. Yes. That's something we all related to. Uh, writing my f- previous email, name-checking Witcher 3 and Yakuza 0 as fucking masterpieces. Mm. Uh, as he was writing this, I could hear the fine tones of Tom S. going, fucking yes, in agreement. Sadly, he wasn't on the podcast. So as a baby present, can I get Tom S. saying, fucking yes, in agreement? Uh, love you folks, Alex. And I feel like the appropriate way to do this is not for you to just say those words, mm. but for me to return to the original question Let's so that you can agree emphatically the at the full, right time. The full just give me a second. Absolutely. Anyone who wants to record this as a ringtone, uh, I don't know why you would. The option's there. <laughs> so dialing back, backwards in time now. Uh, Alex writes, Dear ladies and sirs, sirs and ladies, I'm becoming a father soon, very soon. Our daughter could come any day now. Before my gaming life becomes a baby and a switch for the foreseeable future, I decided that I would start and finish The Witcher 3 Fuck yes. And expansions. Fuck yes. Before it becomes an impossible task. Fuck yes, I'm turning into Greg Wallace. (laughs) (laughs) It's inevitable. Inevitable. (laughs) Uh, I started in April and finished tonight, taking me about four months in all. PUBG distractions made things take a little longer still, but all in all, Geralt... Fuck yes. ...has been my gaming life all summer. Fuck yes. What a fucking special masterpiece that game is. (laughs) Several of you know that already. Fucking yes, I do. (laughs) So I won't dwell on its merits. No, do. It's fucking great. (laughs) 
Dwell. <laughs> it's here comes the question. It's a very rare game that inspires me to get all its achievements. Almost never now that I'm in my thirties. The Witcher Three. Yes. Is now one of those games. <laughs> Fuck yes. Hundred percent for the main game and expansions. Hundred fucking percent. <laughs> because. Fuck yes. As Chris once very well put it, Remass Effect, it's a nod to the developer for creating such an experience you loved so much. Mm, quite. <laughs> Yakuza 0. Fuck yes. Was the one before this, because that is also a fucking That's masterpiece. Also a fucking yes. <laughs> really is. <laughs> what about you folks? What has recently inspired you to go all the way? Does anything anymore? Take care, Alex. Fuck yes. Fuck yes. Uh, obviously we Get answered that page. question, um, last week and, and Tom, we already know the answer to this for you because the thing that inspires you to go all the way is, is the game six out of ten. Yeah, that's very true. Ah, <laughs> uh, good, good, very good video games. I uh, congratulations on your baby, and I hope you get a chance to play Cyberpunk in a few years' time. Indeed, yeah. When your kid is old enough to be in the year twenty seventy seven. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> congratulations uh, to your fifty nine year old child. Yes. Um, don't do the maths properly. You will yes. never know. No, I can't do that now. Um, so, uh, that's all of the emails from last week we've got time for. Um, if you'd like to send us a question for a future episode of the Crate and Crowbar, you can email us the questions at crateandcrowbar.com. You can also tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. Hmm. And, uh, many thanks to our Patreon supporters, uh, who, whom made this do. If you'd like to also help make it do, you can find out more at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. You can, at last, find us individually hmm. on Twitter.com. Uh, I'm at C Thurston, that's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N, Tom. I'm still PC, uh, well, procedure generated Ludo. PCG <laughs> Ludo. Um, yeah. Good. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody.